Alright everyone, welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that brings you the most radical toys, games, movies, music, and more from the 80s that sneaks into the hearts of your circle of friends to a point that you no longer know which one of you is the most 80s fan of all. We're your hosts, I'm Ben. And I'm probably Chris. Oh, and this is 80s High. Oh, I'm so excited for the setup. It's going to be a good one. It's going to be a really good one. Christopher... It's been a hot minute. How are you? I am fantastic. We have not seen each other in so long. I dare say 24 hours time since we last It's been too much time. (laughs) It's been too much time. But thankfully on this cold, dark, blizzardy night, we have our friendship to keep us warm for now. It's weird. It was fall and all of a sudden there's like eight feet of snow outside. I saw a husky (laughs) running through the snow. It was crazy. I was like, what's going on? A helicopter buzzed by. What? I saw a husky. Oh, my gosh. This is going to be fun. I'm excited. But, dear listeners, you should be excited just as much as we are Mm. because you do not have but one host. Mm. You do not have but two podcast hosts, but three podcast hosts. (laughs) We know that all good things come in three. So not only do you have three hosts, but our third host is making his third appearance on the podcast, our expert on everything October, mm. Halloween, slasher films. Welcome back to the podcast, co-host Mikey! Yay! Yeah. Yay me! <laughs> Myself! Yeah, it's October, so you had to dig me up out of the crypt. It's a- <laughs> we, we did. We, we, we always did. pry up the floorboards. We uh, we mm-hmm. let Mikey come out from underneath. It's great. We're uh, I go into the bathroom and I turn off the lights and I go, Mikey, Mikey, Mikey. <laughs> just see if he'll show up. <laughs> uh, well, it is it is the season of Halloween, and of course we had to have you back for our Halloween topic episode, which we will get to. Uh, but sir, as we always start Halloween, have you encountered? Ooh, that's also very Halloween-y. Encountered. Mm. Have you encountered any 80s stuff in your recent days? Music, videos, games, more? Uh, in preparation for this, obviously, I had to re-watch our subject. Yes. And uh, also kind of fell down the rabbit hole of just John Carpenter in general. Oh, oh fantastic. And, and thought a little bit about my favorites of his. Ooh. But also, yeah, I mean, I like watching horror movies every year uh, in October. And just kind of making my lists this year of stuff I need to watch. And there's definitely some 80s classics in there that I haven't viewed in quite a while. I would say the three of us put together are the triumvirate of 80s Halloween crossover nostalgia passion. Mm-hmm. And you were always a good celebrator of the season. Like, is there anything you're looking forward to this Halloween season? Yeah, I mean, May, uh, my daughter, is what going to be almost five years old. So she's super into it now, like even more so than last year. She's like just steadily grown even more of like how much she's going to be excited for yeah. Halloween. Mm. And 
I'm just excited for her to get to experience all the the fun stuff of the season, like always. Oh, amazing. Heck yeah. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, like Halloween is, you know, it's a lot like Christmas. Well, a little less so because I still think Halloween is better than Christmas. But it it, it lessens a little (laughs) bit as you get older. Once you get past the point where you're going to parties, you need your own re-entry into what makes Halloween so great. And having a kid is... I think kind of the best part of that, getting to see it through their eyes again. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks, from co-host Mikey. If, <laughs> if Halloween's not doing it for you right now, go make a kid. Yeah, just have a kid. <laughs> like, that's the best. <laughs> to enjoy the, you know, that one day a year. <laughs> or go, you'll go to your local Walmart, pick one up, walk out. Like, just, there you, you, know, you can, There's kids all over the place. Rent one. That's right. Yeah, rent a kid. <laughs> rent a kid. Yeah. Like, if, you know, it's like, if you're yeah, Blockbuster for you know, kids. Maybe, yeah. That's true. Borrow that's perfect. That's true, yeah. Christopher. Have you encountered anything, 80s, and recording our previous episode last night doesn't count? So, <laughs> so just, again, I have another small, funny thing. I shared in the last episode a meme that I came across. Actually, the Instagram, like a 90s throwback commercial. Well, I found something else that was squarely 80s this time. I'm, I'm not Ooh. violating the 90s, uh, you know, warning again. Um, but it was a meme of uh, Sally Jesse Raphael. Uh, I think we all remember her from her talk show, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah, perfect. I love where this is going. It's. I think you do. Yeah. So it's like four images. It's. It says Sally Jesse Raphael, and she's wearing red. And then it says Sally Jesse Donatello, and she's wearing purple. And then Leonardo and Michelangelo. It's basically the same picture of her, but with the different colors uh, representing the turtles. And it just Stop made me it. chuckle. It was silly, and I was like, I've never even thought of that joke. And it's a perfect dad joke, which I always appreciate. And it was funny. So yeah. It's very good. I do like the progression. Yeah. Sally, Jesse, uh, Leonardo. <laughs> uh, you know, it like, relates not to our topic at all, but I, we should put that up on our Insta this week. That sounds yeah, funny. Yeah, why not? It's that. fun. We'll do it. Who doesn't like a good meme? So that's it. That was just my little reminder. I, I completely forgot about her. I completely forgot she was a talk show host. And I was like, oh, yeah, Sally, Jesse, of course. She was like a big deal with those signature red glasses. Yeah, right. Yeah. Before we head on down to history class, we have to find out what Knowles is cooking up in the cafeteria for all of us today. Mmm. <laughs> Attention, 80s high. I'm Allison Dixon from the Ding Dong Darkness Time podcast, working as a sub for AP Chemistry, and here to share today's homeroom announcements before going back to play with dangerous chemicals for science. Kids today might think everything is cringe, but deep down, we all still just want to be cool. That's why you should follow the 80s High podcast on Instagram. Today's lunch will be Lunch Ladies Revenge, an assortment of leftover horrors assembled into a monstrous casserole. Ironically, Lunch Ladies Revenge is also what they call the effects of eating it. But if you top it with crushed Doritos and chase it with a monster energy drink, you may just survive. Godspeed, kids. If you're loving 80s High, consider supporting the show by dropping a rad review or rating on Apple, telling a classmate to tune in, or even chipping in a few dollars at coffee.com. It sounds like coffee, but it's actually spelled K-O-F-I. Coffee is probably what they could have used when dreaming up the spelling for the site, but who am I to judge? I need coffee to spell my own name most times. After school today, swing by the auditorium to watch the dress rehearsal for the upcoming school play, Whoa, That Aged Poorly, a 16 Candles musical, which also holds the record of the shortest play in existence when you take out all the bad stuff. 
Or if the theater isn't your thing, there's a football game tonight between the Fightin' Mogwais and their biggest rivals, the Be Kind Rewinders. Sure to be a blockbuster of a time. Thank you, kids, and have a most triumphant day. Go Mogwais, and be good, you little ding-dongs. Well, gents, the lights are starting to get a little low on the horizon, and it's getting a little chilly out here. I think we should... Hold on, what's that noise? Dum dum. <laughs> dum dum. Dum dum. I think it's time for dum, us to dum. head inside to the pool room. Uh, and maybe bar the doors for a bit, and let's get into this week's topic. So that was great. There was a really cute dog on our way into history class, mm. and we all got real close and petted it. So I'm yeah. sure we're all... He licked my open mouth. Oh, even better. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah, he licked my eyeball, like, right across <laughs> the eyeball, so... So much orifice connection. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. We're already getting into body horror. This is fantastic. <laughs> uh, Mikey, as our co-host and expert in horror films, could you do us the honor... What is it? What are we talking about this week? We are talking about John Carpenter's 1982 alien horror, body horror classic, The Thing. Mm. (laughs) Which, if you haven't seen, is a uh, not so much remake, almost kind of sequel, almost kind of readaptation of the uh, source short story, uh, Mm -hmm. which is called Who Goes There. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is about a group of... Uh, Antarctic researchers uh, that are stuck in a base, possibly with a shape-shifting alien thing. Well, not possibly. Most definitely. (laughs) Uh, And the paranoia... Yeah, the paranoia and the degradation of what happens when you're not sure if you can trust your fellow man. Mm. Oh, man. I just think about all those board games you play where it's like hidden roles. Like, who's the the killer? Who's the werewolf or whatever? It's like... Werewolf or secret Hitler. Secret Hitler, yeah. Probably all got a little inspiration from the movie, right? That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. 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 And all those kids out there saying, sounds awful sus. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We're going to school you in a minute. Yeah. Um, You don't know That's a great sus. Thank you, sir. I'm going to set two ground rules here before we get into it. First, on any movie we've ever done in three and a half seasons of 80s High, there is more information out there in the world about The Thing than any other movie we've come close to. Even, like, Gremlins. Mm. Probably, yeah. There's there's so much written, so many YouTube documentaries. So our goal, listener, is to keep this relevant and interesting – and try and not think that we're supposed to be the encyclopedia of the thing. <laughs> because there's a lot of great stuff out there for you to go read and watch. This is a great entry to it, too. And if you like this, go find more. But, like, this could be a 19-hour podcast episode. We could do a whole show on the thing. So, that's ground rule one. We're going to try and not be super comprehensive. So please don't write angry letters when we miss your tiny favorite detail of the movie. Mm. It's valuable. It's great. we got a lot we got to skip over. Mm. But as a trade-off, I've got a great game for our listeners that is on theme for this week's recording of the episode. Oh. Oh. Whenever one of the three of us says the phrase, the thing, that person is now infected. And they are the thing. So you, listener, try and keep track. And by the end of the show, whichever one of us says the thing last is infected with the alien. Whoa. I'm glad you didn't say drinking game, because if so, we'd have some alcohol poisoning going on. Please get off the road, stat. Uh, buckle yourself in. Yeah, the thing drinking game. Oh, my God. Um, this is great. I'm so excited, guys. 
Let's get into it. Chris, something I realize we haven't done in a long time is gone obnoxiously far back in history, in history class. Okay. <laughs> so I thought, well, obnoxious, I'm here. Why don't we get into it? So I just, I thought it was a fun fact. I was curious when we first started having permanent occupation of the continent of Antarctica. Yeah. When is it? Which, is, which is not as far back as I thought it was going to be. It was at the turn of the century, right after 1900. So in 1904, the Argentine government is credited with beginning the first occupation. They bought a meteorological station on Lorry Island, which had been built the year prior by Dr. William S. Bruce's Scottish National Antarctic Expedition. Okay. So Bill Bruce went down there, built a base to study the air and the atmosphere, left, and the Argentinian government was like, perfect, we're moving in. And that's when we started permanent life on Antarctica. All right. You wonder why we didn't start sooner. I mean, it's just such a lovely place to live. It is really the springtime. It's hard yeah. to beat spring in Antarctica. Springtime nice. in Antarctica. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Can you get over it? Uh, but where did this movie come from? Not just real explorers, but fake ones. So the first book, which Mikey has introduced, 1938's novella, who goes there by John Campbell? Not to be confused with John Carpenter, John Campbell. And he even had a pen name, Don Stewart. So it gets a little confusing. And not to be confused with Joseph Campbell, who wrote Joseph the, Campbell. who did the hero's <laughs> journey. Or, Ca- or Campbell Soup. Yeah. Does or Bruce Campbell. Dude, or Bruce Campbell. Another great, perfect. Thanks for bringing it around to October. Uh, um, have either of you read this little novella? I have not. I thought about trying to get it before we did this, yeah. but I'm just, you know, too lazy. So, well, here's the thing. There is... Oh, Oh no! I even said the th- I Ooh. said it, and I wasn't even referencing the movie. Bum, bum. Oh. Now you're infected. <laughs> bum, bum. No. <laughs> now I'm just gonna say the creature for the rest of this. <laughs> Here's the deal. Uh, <laughs> you can find an audiobook version of it on YouTube, and oh, okay. it's narrated pretty well. And it's only like uh, it's under three hours to listen to. Okay, that's reasonable. Okay. I will say I started to listen to it and I did not complete it. Uh, I will say this much: it gets into a lot of technical detail at the beginning, yeah. <laughs> a oh, yeah. lot. Tonally, in that regard, not the same. But uh, the the descriptions felt very Lovecraft, H.P. Um, Lovecraft, and uh. that you know the very purple prose overwrite. Um, descriptions oh, yeah. of things that are just mm-hmm. very visceral was definitely the approach Campbell took in this. So it was interesting. Didn't get to finish it, but yeah, if you don't want to read it, there's a free audiobook on YouTube. That's pretty nice. It is largely very similar to the story in the movie, just kind of without the body horror. Mm-hmm. It's as close as a story rewritten 50 years later can be to the original. It's pretty close. <laughs> In 1973, it was voted by the Science Fiction Writers of America as one of the stories representing, quote, the most influential, important, and memorable science fiction that has ever been written. Wow. That's a lot bigger than I thought yeah. this like little novella from the late 30s was going to be. Right. It's got a solid start. The only thing that's kind of different is the alien can be multiple people at the same time. Mm. Everybody can be possessed. and <laughs> You don't know. But the, I think as far as in the movie, it's kind of one... It's one creature at a time. Well, the dogs get complicated. Yeah, I think that also, uh, the more you watch it, the more you can try and pick up on, like, who is actually infected and who isn't. Right. Well, and there's also more people at the base in the book. I think it's, like, 30-some people. Oh, is it? Wow. Yeah, so it's a much bigger group. But obviously, you don't get to know many of them very well. Yeah. 
Well, it, about 13 years later, uh, you get 1951's The Thing from Another World, the sort of movie yeah. adaptation of it, which, like, Chris is just dripping in transatlantic accents everywhere. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, where did Bobby go? Uh, is that an alien? Let's go punch him in the face. What do you say, doll? Like, it's Wait, it's did ridiculous. they go into a, you remind me of the thing. What thing? The thing from yes, the right? The thing from the ship. Uh. What ship? <laughs> <laughs> now, Mikey, you a big horror movie guy. Have you seen this? I have not seen the original since I was a kid, uh, which is also when my father decided to introduce me to this version of it, Yeah, which was very ill-conceived, I would say, uh, judging by the graphic content of it. Yeah. (laughs) But I I do remember liking the original quite a bit. It's actually available for free on Tubi right now. Oh, yeah, sure. Thank you. So if people do want to seek it out and give it a watch, I do remember thinking it was worth it. And I meant to try and watch it as well before I watched it, but I just ran out of time. Again, it's the 50s, so it's pretty similar yeah. to The Thing. There's not a lot of graphic gore. There's none, actually. There's not, it's no. not, there's not a lot. There's none. The plot is slightly different. They're in the Arctic, not Antarctic. Mm. The Thing is like, it's a plant-based alien. Mm. And it's yeah. trying to like... He's plant kind of Frankenstein-looking, too. Very free. Yeah, he's mm. big and bon- And played by James Arnett from Gunsmoke, for our mm-hmm. older listeners who liked Gunsmoke. <laughs> uh, it's a little... It's not for our younger audience. But anyway, uh, I saw a few clips. It's kind of fun. I would actually like if I... You two guys would be perfect. If you were around, you're like, let's watch The Thing from Another World. That would be a fun party. I do remember it had a pretty spectacular fire stunt. Uh, yeah, the where guy's the thing like, gets yeah. set on fire and like I think it held a world record for a time too. It's for, a like, long the shot. longest yeah, for the longest somebody has been set on fire in oh, a film. Oh wow. Yeah, that was on YouTube. You could find that one. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into the start the making of this movie though. And I just want to say out there, I recommend for anybody, there's a great making of documentary about the thing. The mm. thing documentary is interviews with the production crew who tell you all the amazing stories, mm. but barely show you the stuff in action, which is <laughs> fine by me. I like I, I like the love hearing the stories and and like meeting the people who are behind it. That was great. So I'm not I'm trying really hard not to regurgitate that documentary in history class, but go watch it. It is really good. It's really really good. And Mikey, you said you watched a version with uh, who who was the commentary. So, yeah, if you own the DVD or the Blu-ray or the 4K, whatever version you own on home media, usually, as long as it's not the digital version, uh, it'll have an option for a commentary by director John Carpenter and Kurt Russell, the star, Mm. together. And it is very entertaining, and they do have quite a few good little tidbits about the production, and a lot of it's really just them talking about how much fun it was to make the movie, even though it was a very hard shoot as well. Right. Okay, so the ability to make this movie changes hands a lot very quickly. So you guys correct me if this is wrong, and I'm going to do my best to make mergers and acquisitions sound interesting to the rest of us. (laughs) Here we go. So David Foster really started the production of this version of the movie in the 70s, when he went, mid-70s, when he went to fellow producer Lawrence Terman and suggested that Universal Pictures makes an adaptation of the 1951 movie we talked about. Mm-hmm. Screenwriters Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins currently held the rights at that time in the mid-70s to make an adaptation, but they didn't want to make a new film. They weren't interested, so Universal Studios bought the rights from those two screenwriters. In 1976, Wilbur Stark purchased the remake rights to 23 RKO picture films. Do you know that studio, Mikey? I don't... That doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, RKO, um, they were kind of a low-budget sci-fi and horror, like, also, like, 
teenage flicks. Mm. Okay. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. there were, like, I Was a Teenage Werewolf was one of theirs. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. So they mostly did, yeah, like, genre stuff. Okay. But uh, they were, like, pretty big in the Hollywood's Golden Age, and then, yeah, kind of just fell off. Hmm. Okay. So among those 23 movies that uh, Wilbur bought, The Thing from Another World was in that 23 and Me horror movie bag, <laughs> yeah. which were really owned at that moment by just three Wall Street financiers who like didn't really mm-hmm. know anything about the movies they owned. They just had the rights to them. I believe King Kong may have been in that deal as well. Because that really? was an arcade what a picture. Deal. Yeah. Wow. What a deal. So Universal got the rights to make the movie from Stark, who was like, yeah, totally. I want to see this 80s version. They go to Carpenter the same year in 1976 by the co-producer of the movie and his friend, Stuart Cohen. What's weird, though, Universal went with a different director at the start mm-hmm. to do it. Who was that? I mean, my man Toby. Toby Hooper. Yeah. Our audience is probably familiar with for what insane horror movie. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. <laughs> the movie that's title is probably more terrifying than the content. <laughs> right. I mean, the movie is very scary. Don't get me wrong, but... When you hear Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you just think blood and guts. But that movie is very bloodless, as I've brought up before. Mm. Yeah, and oh, in fact, was shot hoping for a PG rating. What? Yeah. What the Texas Chainsaw Tickle? What was it going to be about? What were they going to call <laughs> I mean, it? I mean, if you watch it, there's no real blood or gore in that movie. It's a lot of. I running mean, all the stuff is implied. That's true. That's creepy. Yeah, a lot of door slamming. Uh, from yeah, what I, I mean, it is very intense. It's psychologically. Very scary. I think the studio noticed if you call it Texas Chainsaw Pillow Fight, then you can get PG. <laughs> yeah, right. and they were like, we right. just can't do it. We just right. can't do it. Right. So loving his 1974 property, Toby Hooper takes a chainsaw and massacres the hope of the thing ever being made. Because uh, <laughs> Universal's super unhappy with him and his team. Yeah. I don't want to go through every single person, but basically after Universal says we don't like Toby Hooper... They go through a ton of people. The, the, the script gets rewritten over and over again. They go through a bunch of directors. Even John Landis came on briefly, Mr. Werewolf. Oh, yeah. Since you mentioned it, came on. Yep. So Carpenter agrees eventually to direct it, but not write it. Because he had just finished writing Escape from New York and The Philadelphia Experiment. And he's like, I don't know. I got carpal tunnel. My hand hurts. I don't know what his excuse was. <laughs> but he's like, I'm tired, guys. Give me a break. I seem to remember from the commentary, he was actually very intimidated by making a movie with such a large cast and a larger budget because i mean he'd been you know a very small kind of independent filmmaker for this whole time and he saw it as kind of a daunting you know task to take on i mean it really is his first big budget film that makes sense uh halloween and escape from new york are very like micro budget movies for what they are and this one is yeah like you know it goes he goes from maybe like 700 something thousand for escape from new york to over 30 million i believe was the budget on this by the end oh wow! Oh my god yeah right yeah. right we're already ballooning since carpenters like guys i need a break they bring in bill lancaster who before that had only written the bad news bears movies hey bad news bears is a classic it's the if same it wasn't universe. for being set in the 70s. Same universe. Same universe. Oh, my God. This goes back to the chainsaw, the Texas chainsaw, uh, what'd you say, pillow fight. Like, to bring the Bad News Bears kids baseball movie guy in oh, and be like, goodness. hey, could you write this thing. alien body horror that <laughs> I think McCready's cousin is the coach of the... No, He's the know. coach yeah. of the Bad News Bears. <laughs> 
Oh my god. And Bill originally was like, nah, this is lame. Because he thought they were just going to remake the 1951 movie. Mm. And they're like, no, 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 dude, dude, dude. It's based on the original, original source material who goes there from 1938. And he was like, I'm in. Let's do this. This sounds very cool. Mm. You know, so that, like you pointed out, they trimmed down the cast. It's not so many people at the base. They sort of change how the creature works. Lancaster goes through four drafts of the screenplay. But he is credited. I mean, he's the writer, and Carpenter didn't play with the script a whole lot. He comes up with this, like, legendary ending that is very Twilight Zone-inspired, ambiguous. Mm. Uh, Actually, and you know who came up with the ending? That's not, that's not Lancaster? Russell? No, Russell. Go he on. He came up with the actual ending, yeah. Well, that line of, like, why don't we just sit here and see what happens. John Carpenter says, he's like, I can't just have, you know, my two main leads here you know, light each other on fire at the end of the movie. Everybody's just going to hate it. <laughs> and so Kurt Russell came up with the fact, well, why don't they just sit down and share a drink? And then, you know, you fade out. Ooh, this is good. We're, and we're going to come to some some alternate ending options yeah. oh, uh, yeah. later on. This is very good. Yeah. But so this this thing is sort of like floundering. We're, we're through so many uh, drafts. Carpenter's kind of half in, half out. But then good old Ridley Scott, 1979, Alien. And Chris, you always know our discography so well. If people want to hear from us, the two greatest authorities on the Xenomorph franchise, where can they go listen to our Alien episode? Just go to the top of season two. Alien Ooh, yeah, is our first episode of season two. <laughs> we we kick off a, a lovely little four-parter. Uh, John Linus makes his appearance too with the uh, the thriller. Yes. Motion picture, whatever they call it. Small motion picture, aka music video. But yeah. Alien is 79, and Carpenter knocks it out of the park in 78 with, I don't know, like a small little movie that's sort of scary. I don't know. Mikey, was there anything interesting in 78 from Carpenter? No, I couldn't think of anything. All I think is a little child hiding behind a couch. Oh, yeah, Watching wow. his older brother watch a movie that's that right. he shouldn't be watching. That's you right. remember that story? That's amazing. Oh, I remember that story. That's so oh, good. Yeah. So now everyone's excited about this, trapped somewhere with an alien trying to kill everybody. Carpenter's name is blown up even bigger because he just did Halloween, and he still doesn't really want to do it because he's on record quoting saying, you can't make a movie better than the 1951 version with this story. <laughs> I don't know, Mikey, like you've watched a little bit. Do you think the 82, you know, compares it all to the 51? I honestly think that this 1982 version is possibly one of the best 80s films ever made. Whoa, you heard it here first. I think, it's just, I think, and I honestly, I also think it's closest to one of the greatest horror films ever made. It's as close as you can get to a flawless horror movie, I think. You heard it here first, everybody. I, I love this movie, if you couldn't tell. So you remember Carpenter's co-producer friend, Stuart Cohen, who first approached Carpenter in 76 saying, hey, I think you should look at this. And even after the Halloween thing, when Carpenter is like not feeling all about, Cohen is like, hey, buddy, but here's the thing I think you missed. We're not trying to remake the 1951 movie you like. We're trying to make a movie based on the book that that movie was based on 13 years earlier. And Carpenter's yeah. like, ugh, okay, give me the book. And he reads it <laughs> and he like, he devours it. And he's like, this story rocks. And he said it reminded him a lot of Agatha Christie's 1939 novel, And Then There Were None, mm. which she said was mm. the hardest book she ever wrote. It's like a best-selling mystery, a million, hundred million copies out there. It's one of the best-selling books of all time, this And Then There Were None. And because it's basically Clue, but like 
really uncool clue. <laughs> people, you know, this whole idea of like people show up with a mysterious invitation, they're all yep. framed for a murder, and then they kind of turn on each other. And he was like, this is great. I can make a movie, this Arctic chili, scary alien movie with this premise from Agatha and the novella, and I'm on it. So jumping ahead a little bit, but I saw this fact, and I'm just kind of, I'm curious. Um, so Carpenter really liked the 1951 movie. And apparently mm-hmm. in an interview, he said there are several homages to it in Halloween. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's playing on the TV. It is? Like when uh, when Laurie takes over watching the two kids and they're hanging out watching a scary movie on TV. This is before Laurie even encounters Michael Myers kind of in the finale there. Uh, the movie that's on the TV is a thing from another world. Yeah. Perfect. See, I knew you would know that. <laughs> okay, so now... It's kind of coming together. Now Carpenter's trying to starting to buy in. But then he gets word that one of his passion projects, El Diablo, might just get made by EMI Films. And he's like, all right, I'm <laughs> dropping the thing. And everyone's like, oh, you're kidding me. We're so close. Did you ever see El Diablo, Mikey? I did not. I wasn't aware this is a film he actually made. Well, it's not clear in these notes if it actually was finally made. Oh, it was, but it was directed by Peter Markle. Okay, thank you. Tommy Lee Wallace, uh, who is a longtime collaborator and bandmate with John Carpenter. Amazing. Uh, they both co-wrote, apparently. It. I'm looking at it. Oh, it's a Western. That's Because Carpenter, has, he's gone on record as saying he always wanted to make a Western, but he never did. Oh. So it explains why he was willing to drop That's why he was so excited. To try and make, yeah. And so Universal's like, oh, crap, oh, crap. And they start talking to other directors and then EMI comes back to Carpenter and they're like, yeah, man, Diablo's not, we're not ready. And what fu- we have, I find out later is Diablo's actually not ready for like another decade. Yeah. <laughs> Even not under Carpenter. So Carpenter kind of begrudgingly comes back and he's like, all right, I won't make a Western. I'll make the most Southern you can make in Antarctica. So it's mostly shot in Alaska, 50 miles north of Vancouver, uh, British Columbia in Stewart, uh, with some stuff on the Universal Lots as well. But they built that compound from scratch on the Salmon Glacier in the summer of 1981, <laughs> which is crazy. Like, it's a pretty remote filming location. Like, yeah. it's, again, people, like I say in every episode about movies, I love the practicality of the 80s. Like, they built that in a super snowy cold place. <laughs> yeah, well, if I remember in the commentary, Kurt Russell brings it up that they built it in the spring and left it all through the summer. Oh, yeah. So that when they went back to shoot, it had snow on it. Hmm. That's perfect. I mean, so so some of the crew is staying in a nearby mining town during filming. Others are living on residential barges on the Portland Canal. <laughs> and everyone's like busing and driving this curvy, crazy, snowy mountain road to like get to this shooting location, which is which is awesome. Temperature was so cold outside, the camera lenses would freeze and break during shooting. But then like shooting them outside and then bring them in, the camera lenses would fog up. So they had to have like this whole complex system of like keeping the outside cameras warm enough to shoot, but then having indoor cameras that are already indoors and warmed up so they don't fog up to shoot. It was crazy, like trying to figure out all the cameras in there. Mm. Mm. Keith David breaks his hand in a car accident right before his first day of shooting. The scene where uh, Blair is going crazy and shooting. He's hiding his left hand the whole time. And there's a shot where he kind of peeks it out and it looks like his hand has been stung by a bee, but it's because he's wearing a glove that's been painted brown to match his skin color. How nuts is that? Yeah. Wow. So filming lasted about 12 weeks, principal photography in Juneau, Alaska. 
And so we're underway shooting. Mikey, you mentioned earlier about the budget. So by the time filming mm-hmm. began in August, the thing uh, had a budget of $11.4 million, And indirect costs had already brought it to $14 million. When it started <laughs> yeah. shooting. When it started shooting. Yep. It's crazy. And by that point, they're like, we can't, we can't stop it now. Mm. Yeah. So the effects crew originally guessed they would need $750,000 for this creature that was getting invented for this movie. And it ran over so much it doubled. $1.5 million just for the effects budget, mostly for the monster slash alien. But every single one of those cents is on that screen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, these effects hold up even today. Like, they're better than any CG you could ever put in a movie. Absolutely. So the whole movie production comes to $15 million, which is like, I feel like in today's dollars, like, is whatever. It's like pocket change. Oh, that's nothing. Like that's an indie film movies. these days. Yeah. Is that? Right? Let's talk about the alien. What do you guys want to call it? Is it the alien, the monster, the the thing? Should we just call it the thing? I mean, it is an alien, if you really want to get technical. I mean, that's they literally true. show they, they show the ship that it came from. Okay. Uh, well, we can go yeah. with alien. I mean, if you don't want to be infected, you want to call it the alien. Ooh, that's right. The game is afoot. Um, (laughs) You brought up this dude. So, like, there is a mad scientist who is really behind this movie becoming legendary, beyond John Carpenter. Oh, this movie does not reach the status it does without this man. No. So tell us, where where did the thing more practically come from? Uh, The crazy, some say addled mind of a 22-year-old makeup effects apprentice... Uh, Rob Botton. What a maniac. Who, yeah. That dude is insane. 22 years old. He creates probably the most iconic practical special effects, I think, in any film. Ooh. Like, you so you, you can show somebody just a picture of, like, a part of the creature transforming or anything, and they know exactly what it is. And, yeah, started as an apprentice under Stan Winston, I believe. I mean, who better could you apprentice under... Who does an uncredited work in this film? He actually designed right. and did the dog creature in the kennel scene. Precisely, yeah. And we're going to get to Batten's self-abuse and being overwhelmed with this movie. But he basically oh, yeah. got to a point that I don't have enough hours in the day to make all the cool stuff I came up with and got money for. And he reaches out yeah. to Winston to help with that very complicated, kind of the real first reveal of the thing in the dog kennel. It's Yeah, it's your first interaction with the actual creature. And who would somebody know Winston's work from? Like, what movies? Oh, man. I mean, in the 80s, yeah. The Terminator, I mean, really, is probably his most iconic. Okay. He literally created the Terminator. Okay. Queen Alien, right? Yeah, he worked on the Queen Alien in Aliens. And then uh, Jurassic Park, he did um, Okay. the T-Rex and all of the animatronics for that. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm not as familiar with uh, makeup and special effects yeah. folks, I mean, and so yeah. that's when awesome. When I was a kid, I that was my dream. I wanted to be Stan Winston mm. when I was a oh, kid. Yeah. I wanted to make the monsters. Uh, yeah, he is the man. So, but had previously worked with Verhoeven on Robocop, Total Recall, and Basic Instinct, just to throw out some awesome 80s names right off the bat. Yeah. And with Fincher on 7 and Fight Club. And he had also done makeup and special effects on The Howling, Legend, which come yeah. out. I mean, look at Tim Curry's makeup in Legend. You're like, this guy knows oh, what he's doing. That, I love that makeup. That is probably one it's of my It's epic, favorites. right? Yeah. Inner Space and then uh, later for you non-80s people, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. But yeah. he was amazing at what he did. And watching that making of documentary, it's a lot of him. And he is 
so charming. He's like so excited yeah. about his craft and his work. Like he's really fun to listen to. He's the guy that loves what he does. And one of the reasons they got him is because he was so young that yep. he did not ask for this commanding salary because I think like Rick Baker <laughs> was one person who they were interested in. But Rick asked for too much money. And there was another, yeah. I think, well-known oh, yeah. special effect, practical effect makeup artist who similarly asked for too much money. And so you just have to wonder if they were like, we need the best. We're going to bring in Rick, you know, or something right. like yeah. that. Like, how would this movie have been different, right? We spent all the budget on the effects. We don't have any left to hire the guy to do it. Here's a 22-year-old guy who knows how to make Tim Curry look like the devil. Let's get him in here. <laughs> and and we'll, we'll never sleep. Was, He'll never sleep. Yeah, yeah, you won't sleep and won't ask for too much money yet. But his breakout, though, you mentioned it, was the howling. He yeah. created the prosthesis and the method of doing that werewolf transformation, which is it's great, but it was overshadowed by yeah. how amazing American Werewolves is. Mm. But it's oh, yeah. still just it's still probably second best, honestly. We've mentioned it a couple times, but this guy nearly, very literally worked himself to death. Do one of you, one of you guys want to talk about that background, what he was doing to himself? Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about Botten's work ethic. It wasn't so much a work ethic as it was an obsession. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah like he worked himself to the hospital, basically. Yeah. He, I, I'm sure he had to go in for exhaustion at least once, if I, if I remember correctly. Correct. Yeah, yeah. easily yeah. at least, yeah. I mean, but it paid off because once again... You talk about iconic and just mind-blowing, and those makeup effects are just insane. 100%. So this dude was working seven days a week for a year and five weeks, and he was living during post in those shots. He was living on the Universal lot on sets and in locker rooms. And at 21, he was hospitalized for exhaustion, double pneumonia, and a bleeding ulcer just because of how much he was working (laughs) on this movie. Wow. Yeah. He's insane. And he clearly didn't do it for money. Like, he literally does it for passion and for the yeah. love of what he's doing. Absolutely. That's just insane. I do want to say one crazy thing about the effects, as long as we're on bottom, is 90% of, like, you when you see the actors reacting to the stuff that's going on, they are reacting to nothing. Because none of the special effects were done until, like, after principal oh, photography. Crazy. It's oh, crazy. It's all really? done in post. And, like, they would bring back, you know, like, one or two select people like Kurt Russell or whatever to shoot stuff on the sound stages in LA. But yeah, like during the actual shoot, like on location and in their sets, they're sitting there reacting, you know, like tennis balls on a stick <laughs> or like John Carpenter saying, now there's tentacles going around. Blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, they're not seeing what we get to see. Wait, are you telling me the amazing line? You gotta be effing kidding me. was like basically somebody <laughs> yeah. rolling like a tennis ball down the corridor. Is that what happened? Yeah, I, I I know that's Kurt Russell's favorite line right. out of any movie he's ever made. Like he says, it kills him every time he sees so it. So good. The delivery uh, is great. Yeah. The delivery is yeah. so good. <laughs> so some of the background on this monster, Lancaster, the writer, wanted to make sure that his sort of idea was like this alien has been over the entire galaxy. It's encountered millions of life forms and assimilated them, so it can take lots of different shapes. And that that melded well with Carpenter, who was like, Alien was awesome but I don't want a guy in a suit. Every sci-fi yep. alien monster movie I've seen is a dude in a suit and it's lame. And so Button's like, do you have $1.5 million? I think I can do this for you. <laughs> and Carpenter, once he started to see what Button did, Carpenter was like, no images of this thing get out before this movie hits the theater. We have to blow 
people's minds. And it's kind of a little like the marketing campaign for Alien where I liked it's just that green light down the middle of the black poster. And then it eventually yeah. evolved to the egg on the net. But that was alluring. But this was like nothing. Show the dude in the parka in the snow with his face glowing. That's it. Yep. So a lot of cool mystery as this is like coming together. Do you guys want to take some guesses at some of the food that's used in the uh, special effects of the creature as it oozes bubbles and pops? Yeah, I know bubble gum was one of them, especially for the neck stretching scene where Ooh. the guy's head comes off. Microwaved bubble gum, that is correct. I mean, obviously, corn syrup has got to be for the blood, but I don't know if you count that as Yes, but food. an additional, just to make it lumpy, creamed corn. Ooh, lovely. Mayonnaise, which we know does well other under hot set lights. Oh, That's yeah. always really yeah. great. Yeah. Peter, Peter Gabriel great. loves a good hot sauce food under lights. <laughs> the man loves fruit on a hot plate, let me tell you. <laughs> fruit on a hot plate. That's good. That's good. And more more KY jelly than any of us should have room for. Obviously, yeah. there's a lot of KY jelly. But dude, Mikey, you always know practical effects really well. I'm not going to go through every scene, but one that's pretty epic. There's a pretty awesome way they do the chest chomp. Mm. Reveal of the yeah. alien. And the guy loses his arms. Do you know how that effect was pulled off? Yeah, it's a they hired a actor who was a double amputee. He didn't have anything from the elbow down. And they put prosthesis on him. And when there's a cut where the hands get chomped, like it's an actual mechanism chomping on some fake hands. And then the actor's also wearing a like face molded mask of the actor yeah. who plays Doc at the time. And that scene is the scene that was seared into my mind as a child. Like, that is something that is going to be with me till the day I die. Oh, yeah. Because it shocked me to my core. Mm. <laughs> it was not, like, I mean, obviously I'm like a, you know, eight, nine-year-old kid watching that movie. Definitely shouldn't have been watching that movie. Oh, my God, no. No. <laughs> that explains so much now. And that, it literally, like, broke my brain. I remember almost feeling like I heard something snap in my head. Just being like, I can't believe I just saw that happen. Wow. Only two other puppet things right after that, you know, like the head tears off and goes to crawl away. And I guess in the original puppet, there's all these foam, rubber foam chemicals inside of it. And so like in in the scene when they kind of shoot a flamethrower at it, the first time they did it, they like, the thing explodes. Like all this chemical (laughs) stuff shoots out all the orifices and like the crew and and the cast dive away. Ridiculously, the puppet itself was salvageable and they just like filled it with a different material. But oh, I just man. love that they're like, all right, uh, and action. Boom! And everybody like, flies away <laughs> out of that room. Just nuts. And the last little thing, in, uh, in Labyrinth, we talked that Hoggle is operated by like four or five puppeteers. The mm. final Blair thing in the end took 50 people to operate that giant puppet monster. And it probably all crammed up inside of it and underneath the floor on which right. it's perched <laughs> in right. various horribly uncomfortable positions. Right? Oh my gosh. That's a lot of the production. Let's go into some casting. Who do we get to be in here? And of course, we have our lead who kind of emerges as as the anti-hero, but the de facto leader. Uh, Chris, do you have any background on us? Uh, either of you guys, of Kurt Russell coming to the movie. I mean, Kurt is a very, very last minute casting. Like he's, yeah. you know, a lot of these movies, they they get their lead first and then they build their cast around it. And they had a lot of trouble finding the right person who was available. Apparently Nick Nolte was kind of the, <laughs> the finalist. I can kind of see that with how gruff he is. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So like he, I can't remember why he didn't, like it was a conflict or something happened that it didn't go to Nick, but he was basically pegged to be McCready 
And there's a massive list of people, just a few. Uh, Tom Berenger, probably not surprisingly, if you know Carpenter's uh, works. Jeff Bridges. Jeff is a, you know, star man and lots of other movies. I could see him, yeah, for sure. He'd probably play it a little more laid back. Right? Yeah, a little different vibe. Uh, Chris Christofferson. Oh. Okay, yeah. This was a I, – I literally had to stop and I read this name. I'm like, is this accurate? Christopher Walken? <laughs> <laughs> oh, just, my God. What movie is that? I mean, in the 70s, yeah, early 80s, he's probably coming off like, what, Dead Zone and The Deer Hunter. Everybody, I, sit down in the lab. I'm going <laughs> to test your blood. It'll be a thing. You know, I just think, what is going on? Uh, here's the thing. Okay. I, 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 I want to know how practical this is or not. But I, I had this like weird idea over the weekend. I'm wondering how far we are away from AI where you could like tell a computer, like, give me 1982's John Carpenter oh, the thing. Yeah. But in the role that Kurt Russell plays, put Christopher Walken. And he'll, like, deliver all the lines in the script in a Christopher Walken way, but, like, you could get that movie. Do you think that's out there? Do you think that's on the potential horizon? I think it's already out there now. And apparently there are some actors who have signed over rights, like, after they die. Yeah. that They, they can be yeah. basically AI'd into things. So, like, yeah. That could be really interesting, I think. could be really fun. Uh, and just a few more names that are interesting. Clint Eastwood. Ooh. I could see uh, that at yeah. that time. And Harrison Ford. So... Yeah. Harrison that list Ford, is probably three see. times as long, but those were yeah. the standouts to me that I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, in a way, Russell gets the vote because he and Carpenter were just working on Escape from New York. And apparently like, right. on the set, they were like kicking ideas back and forth that Carpenter was thinking about this. And Russell was already really intrigued by the project. Yeah. And they had worked on... Uh the TV version of Elvis that Carpenter did as well, a biopic oh, about Elvis's yeah. life with, yeah, Kurt Russell. So this is their third collaboration together. And not their last. Oh, not yeah, their right, last, right. for sure. So I love that this is Keith David's breakout role. This is Keith David's first movie in the really? film. Really? I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's super interesting... Keith David's, by the way, plays Childs. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Please, Our second kind of lead. Mm-hmm. And the two that have been tapped for that were Ernie Hudson of Ghostbusters oh. from uh, I can see that. The 80s. Ernie got pretty far, right? Like, I feel like he was yes. the top contender. And then once again, something happened, and I don't know exactly what it was. Was he not known enough? No, that doesn't make sense, because David wasn't known at that time either. I yeah, can't remember. No. Yeah, I couldn't find, like, why the switch. They must have just saw an audition and liked him more. I do want to say, like, I think he did nail it. I think Keith came in and nailed it, and that that was probably yeah, part of I, it. Yeah, I love him in that movie. Yeah. He's incredible in that role. And I guess Roger Mosley was also up for the part, but he got Magnum P.I., so they went with Keith. Oh, okay. Yeah. But Keith was super drawn to the script because, spoiler alert, everybody, Childs lives in the end. And yep. Keith David couldn't think of a horror movie where the black actor lived to yeah, the end of the movie, he's hero. like, I want to yeah. do this. And it's sort of revolutionary for film at the time, yeah. which is pretty cool. Yeah, I'm like, the closest you get is Alien. I think the last two characters are Sigourney and yeah. um, I can't remember Gothic the... Kodo. Yeah, and so that's probably the closest yeah. you've gotten at that point. Yeah, Night of the Living Dead also, like, yeah, he, he makes it to the end, but not all the way to the very final minutes of the film. Right, right. That dude uh, in Alien is the second to last because he dies... And then the other woman who went down to get oxygen tanks yeah. bites it, yep. and then Sigourney gets the cat. Save the cat! <laughs> Jonesy. Jonesy makes it. Jonesy makes it. Of course you got to save the cat. 
Wilford Brimley was a really important, he wasn't really known then yet, but they wanted a guy, they wanted to cast someone in that role who could disappear on screen without the audience really questioning it. Like, he's just sort of a guy, and then you can be like, oh, crap, he's like the real thing now. Like, so they let that. Pre-mustache. Pre-mustache Wilford Brimley. I mean, that iconic mustache, Pre-mustache and (laughs) pre-diabetes. Oh, that's right, I forgot about that. You are a loved one suffering from diabetes. Diabetes. He, by the way, plays Blair, the senior biologist. Thank you. I keep missing that. I'm going to get the next one, I promise. Isn't he the one that's just pulling all of the guts and organs out of the alien? Yeah, he's the one who dissects great. the thing, creature. He's just digging in there, man. He has yeah. no, no qualms. Yeah, John Carpenter <laughs> on the commentary said, like, he he told John that it wasn't a big problem for him because he grew up on a ranch. That's yeah. right. He's used to, like, delivering calves and having to do this kind of stuff. And he was just like, well... I'm getting paid to do it now. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so good. Since we talk about this kind of stuff in math class, I thought this was cool that this got called out in the early 80s. So T.K. Carter was cast as Knowles, who's like the cook, I kind of think, like yeah, kitchen. he's the cook, Kate. yeah. But comedian Franklin Ajay also came in to read for the role. But instead of really reading for it, he got up there and just did a huge speech to the casting team that was like, this character has been written as a stereotype of black people you should either rewrite this character. I'm not going to be in it. And then he just like walked out. <laughs> wow. So I love that he just came in to protest the stereotyping in the role. Did he invent the mic drop? He just went. Ajay out. Uh, it was pretty good. Mikey, the, the, we could go through every cast member, but there's a cast member I really want to hear from you about. And that's Jed the dog. Ah. Uh. You talk a dog about lover. that is probably one of the best dog performances ever on 100%. film. That dog never looks at the camera. He never looks around at any crew members. Like he is focused on what he's actually supposed to do. That dog is just incredible. Uh, he's a good boy, is what he is. He's yeah. such a, he's a good, good boy. boy. <laughs> he's, he's such a good boy. boy. Although apparently he's not good at running across snow because in the beginning of the film. The dog that is running across snow is not Jeb. It is a body double that they had to like put some coloring marking on to make look like him. Look, he doesn't do his own stunts, okay, everybody? Yeah, he doesn't do his own look. stunts. He's an actor. <laughs> He's a thespian. He's like, I only want the organic dog food in my trailer. <laughs> the organic Bottled dog water food. only in my yeah. water bowl. No puppy chow. <laughs> no, Jed, Jed kills that because paired with the music and just how the movie is shot, so many of those scenes where like the dog is looking uncomfortably at something and not moving. And if you've been around dogs, you know that look on a dog. Yeah. And you know that you should be worried if you see a dog behaving like that. Uh-huh. And the dog crushes it. And what's crazy is that dog, Jed, had like not really worked much with people. And the guy, um, who's the guy who is in there with the dogs? Like the kennel, the main kennel guy. Oh, oh is it uh, Richard Mazur? Yes, Mr. Mazur, who made, plays Clark. Yeah. He had to Clark. spend a ton of time with Jed off set so that Jed would be really comfy with him. And they got to a point where, like, Jed would, like, follow him around the set. And, like, they would they were really close by the time they shot that, which was awesome. I think That's Carpenter awesome. said that he was just blown away by that dog's performance. Yeah. For the reasons yeah, you mentioned, Mike. He brings up in the commentary a lot. Does he? Yeah. 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 Anytime the dog is on screen, he's just like, this dog is the best actor I've ever directed. <laughs> <laughs> I think another thing that's really interesting in history, and Mikey, you're going to know this a lot with Carpenter. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Carpenter's background as a musician, as it relates to his films? Oh, yeah. And then, like, kind of what happened with the music on the thing? I mean, Carpenter, like, he could have just as easily probably could have decided he was just going to be a composer 
or even a rock star in, instead of a director. He's had a band forever. He that's basically what he does now for a living, other than you know getting checks from people remaking his films and <laughs> laughing all the way to the bank. Uh, but he, yeah, he has concerts that he puts on. He composes his own like synthwave music these days. But uh, yeah, from the start, composed his own music for a lot of his stuff. I mean, some of the most iconic horror themes are his. Halloween, he came up with that melody. Mm. Did Escape from New York. And then this, this is his third film. And I've mentioned already that he always wanted to make a Western. Ennio Morricone, uh, the famous Italian Great. composer who did yeah. Good, Bad, the Ugly and like numerous other films. He's always wanted to work with him and decided to work with him uh, on the thing and hired him to do the score. Uh, if only it had worked out as well as he wanted it to. Yeah. Because uh, Morricone, I don't think he quite got Carpenter's tone that he wanted. Right. From what I've read. Yeah. Uh, and several times, like, he, Carpenter was like, I like this, but I want something, you know, a little different, a little more moody kind of stuff. And I think Carpenter said eventually Morricone gave him like 20 minutes of stuff that he liked. And so he took that and he used it in the film and then realized he needed more and just did some stuff of his own. Mm. Okay. Okay. And so like 90% of Morricone wrote for this film just sat on a shelf wow. for years until eventually Quentin Tarantino comes along and says, I'm making a Western called The Hateful Eight. Uh, I want you to do the score for it. Yeah, and Morricone right. goes... I could do that. I've got some stuff here that never got used from the thing, and boom, throws it into the Hateful Eight, uh, and won him an Oscar yeah. for that score. <laughs> Isn't that so wild? That's amazing. Just crazy. That's awesome. Which I do have to say, I have trouble with the Hateful Eight, but the soundtrack is fantastic. Oh, yeah. The music yeah, is so sure. good. Uh, that was just the background we needed, sir. Thank you for bringing that together. So all the pieces are coming together. This movie is getting ready to come out. And they decide after they get the first cut of the trailer to put it before. Do you guys know what movie they ran this before for the trailer? E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Well, E.T. came out two weeks before this. Yeah. So it's a yeah. room full of kids. <laughs> and you get this, this dun-dun, dun-dun, like the thing. Like, mommy? Like, can you imagine? All the kids are like, what is happening? Uh, I have crapped my pants. Exactly. They're like, we are... <laughs> So effed. So they they redo a movie poster, which is like the classic one you see now that Drew Struzan did. Love that poster. And then they redo the tagline. I want, before I give the grand reveal, I'm sorry to put you guys on the spot. So I'll talk a little at length to give you time to think. I want you to think about a tagline for this movie. Because the original tagline, I have trouble picturing on the poster. And I just want you to come up with like, what is the worst tagline for this film you can think of like something of like like horror takes many shapes or like it's about to get hot in a cold place. Like, what, what would <laughs> that you? That one's actually that first one actually is a I think is a good tagline. That's, yeah, a, that, that, that's a what would, horror but, takes like, many shapes. But I know the one that's on the poster is the ultimate in alien terror. Right. So this this is. Uh, but I don't. What was what's the original? I can't even imagine. Because the ultimate in Alien Tiger is not very good. No. no. No, it's not. It's written by Stephen Frankfurt, who is the mind behind In Space No One Can Hear You Scream. Yeah. Well, he phoned this one in. My goodness. Yeah. Phoned home, my friend. Absolutely. Because yeah. they wanted to put the word alien in it. So people are like, bro, this is like alien. Would realize it's super oh, that's good. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The initial tagline. Man is the warmest place to hide. Oh, no, I knew that. And I love that tagline. Really? What are you, 
Yes, I think that's such a better tagline than the ultimate in Alien Terror. It's creepy. I feel like it would be... Oh, it, it makes you feel gross just yeah, hearing Yeah, I feel it. gross, but I also feel like it could work on like a, like a dime romance novel where like she's an international spy and she has to hide okay, yeah, from sure. the mafia. Man, man is the warmest place to hide. And they're like snuggled in a bed yeah, somewhere. Yeah, man is the warmest place. To, I knew that. Warmer than yeah. a tauntaun? I don't think so. There you go. Oh, yeah. True. You never slept in a tauntaun? <laughs> Um, and you thought they smelled bad on the outside. That's yeah. right. <laughs> the last thing I want to do, there's a couple cute little marketing tricks they did, which I thought was really neat. In 81, the horror magazine Fangoria held a contest where people could draw what they thought the thing was going to look like and submit it. And they would like publish all I these pictures. if anybody even got close. I could not find if anyone got close. But oh. I would love if someone was like, obviously, it's a head crab. Duh. Right, right. Like, we all see. Where that, like, it's someone's head, but now it's a crab. We all know where that's going. And then I also love the opening day was at the Hollywood Pacific Theater, which was presided over none other than Mistress of the Dark, Elvira herself. Oh, man. Which oh. I thought was pretty cool. And if you dressed in costume as a monster, you got in free, which I thought that was a cool nice. promotion. Awesome. Do you know what other 80s sci-fi classic opened the same weekend? A sci-fi 80s classic the same weekend. Also was panned upon release, just like this film. Oh, this is a great... But see, this is why you bring you, man. I I read this, and now I don't remember what it was. (laughs) So this is the weekend of June 25th, 1982, a summer 82 release. Tell us, man, what what should we have remembered that we have failing on? Blade Runner. (gasps) Yes, Blade Runner. Can you imagine... Going to a theater and double featuring Blade Runner and The Thing. Oh my god. At the time you would have been seeing the uh, original theatrical cut of Blade Runner, which had the horrible Harrison Ford uh, voiceover. Oh, where weird. you could tell he's like he just did not want to record it and was just only <laughs> given like he was just like, I'm gonna record this, but it's not gonna sound good. Right. <laughs> which sounds like the last twenty years of his career. Ah hey. <laughs> He's earned it. Harrison's he really has. Cranky. What are you talking about? No, he's a cheerful old lad. Um, That's right. And so bringing us home in history. So during that opening weekend that you mentioned, you know, it's going up against Blade Runner and some others. It only earns 3.1 million from 840 different theaters in that opening yeah. weekend. And remember, this movie costs about 15 million, way over budget. That makes it land number eight, uh, way behind Poltergeist. Yeah. It was a big summer. Big summer. Spielberg. He had Poltergeist and E.T. two weeks before this. Yeah. So the film drops out of the top 10 grossing films just after three weeks. Oof. Which honestly feels a little like today in cinema. Like a movie crushes the first week or so if it's good, and then you just don't hear about it anymore. Yeah, back in the day, they used to just run forever because the the slate wasn't as full as it was now. And but movies today, yeah. you like hear when it's going to be streaming before it hits the theater, and it's there for like <laughs> three or four weeks. Yeah, and then it's yeah, gone. Depending on yeah what it is. So it ended its run at nineteen point six million. Uh, so it only made four point six million, which made it the forty second highest grossing film of eighty two. And that's worldwide. Yeah, right. And this is yeah back in the eighties where they did not care about worldwide gross. It was only about domestic. So like it right. technically made a profit, but it certainly wasn't a hit. No. Um, but it also didn't flop, and it wasn't reviewed well either. Yeah. So I mean, I don't want to add another forty five minutes to history class, but the yeah. reception was bad. The general yeah. takeaway from critics that I could see is like it's a gore fest. There's not there's it's and it was shallow. Mean. They thought it was mean and depressing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they just didn't get it. I mean, uh, you mentioned Ebert himself, 
who yeah uh, Ebert himself did not Roger Ebert the famous Chicago Tribune film critic he very famously did not like the film said it was yeah dark and ugly and gross and then later on in life uh when the 2011 prequel sort of thing came along said that over time he had come to see its charms and actually enjoys the film and recognizes it as a sci-fi horror classic that it is well and it wasn't just him who came around a lot of people came around including us yes i think it's time for us to come a right round baby right round like a record player baby (laughs) and move out of this out of one cold room into another and get our chill on in chemistry class where we dive into our own impressions memories and take ons from this horrifyingly wonderful film what do you say, gents? Ben, I am not stepping foot in chemistry class without my flamethrower, okay? <laughs> That's yeah, a safe teach move. Wants to, teach wants to do some sort of blood test <laughs> on this. Is this the same scientist from Gremlins who just loves to test all these side projects? This is great. Yeah, he said he said something about a petri dish and some rope and a couch. Oh, oh my god! You know, that well, sounds I like mean, a fun say Friday no night. More. I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> All right, guys, we made it all here to chemistry, but uh, Mikey, I found this jacket of yours in the garbage can a little torn up, and you you kind of took a while to get here, man. Where were you? Back off, or I'm going to light this stack of dynamite up right now. <laughs> okay, okay, all right, all right, hands off. Let's just, let's just teach the people what they want to know. Hold on, why does the chemistry teacher have dynamite? Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Asking the right questions. Tie yourself up to that couch. There's no safety regulations <laughs> in this high school. Good Lord. <laughs> Uh, so we are in chemistry. This is the class where we always revisit what we thought of the movie and other things that happened, you know, once the thing came to be, whatever that topic was. Uh, so, guys, it sounds like, Mikey, your exposure was probably first since, like, on a sick day from kindergarten, your mom put it on. <laughs> so do you wanna... No, this was, this was my dad used to do this when I've already said my mom used to manage a blockbuster video when I was a kid. That's right. Uh, and my dad would often rent movies that I'm sure he, he wanted to watch himself, but then realized I can't watch this by myself because later tonight I'm going to have to spend time with my wife and she's not going to want to watch this, but I have the kids right now and I could traumatize. You know what? These kids will be fine. We'll just watch these movies now. And uh, army of darkness was one example of that, which honestly I could see why he thought that was one. Okay. It was, I mean, it's basically Ray Harryhausen swashbuckling adventure but set in the evil dead universe then the thing was one that probably should not have been brought to my attention that young for sure Mm. mikey i'm gonna let you finish but before i do in case our listeners hear any change whatsoever in the quality of the audio i actually lost power the moment after i asked the question when did mikey first find the thing we are reconvening five days later to finish the recording of our thing episode and i was gone for a long time outside in the dark in the cold and no one knows where i was but now my eyes aren't sparkling like everyone else's my breath looks a little different in the dark oh I, wait i don't no know I feel, oh my gosh i'm sure i'm fine i'm fine i'm fine mikey so sorry to interrupt when... hold on mikey mikey why don't you grab that flamethrower yeah, over there like, just, just pull, sit down if on you that could couch right about yay yeah, yeah that'd be great <laughs> where was i mikey did you first encounter the thing? 
Well, as I said before, uh, the lights went out and you disappeared for five days. <laughs> uh, I saw it way too young. And in fact, I think even before we got to this part in our show, I had mentioned that when I saw the CPR scene with uh, the guy oh, who has yeah. the heart attack, that something in my mm. brain kind of broke. I want to stress that wasn't a negative way. It was like something in my brain broke. And then I was like, holy cow, how did they do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that was kind of the main driver of my love for this movie as a kid when I saw it way too young was like, I can't believe somebody made that in a movie and I wonder how they did it. Mm. And so like the special effects really are what stuck with me as a kid. Couldn't get that out of my head for a very long time. And still it's, it's, it lives rent free in my head. <laughs> a thousand percent. I'll close my eyes yeah. once in a while and I'll see some form of the thing behind my eyelids. It's, it's always there just waiting. <laughs> Christopher, when did you get your fingers cold and numb with the thing? I mean, it was within the last month. So, oh, yeah. as wow, you're late to it. Almost too usual on this podcast. I <laughs> never experienced this movie properly. I knew it was a movie. I don't think I knew much more than that. It was one of those where I'm like, there's the thing, there's Swamp Thing, there's... Um, <laughs> There's do the like right a, thing. Do that the right thing, thing you do. Yeah, exactly. All the thing <laughs> movies. No. There was an there's another like classic Chud. Oh, Chud. Sure. <laughs> I, would, Chud. I would have called Chud a classic, but sure. Okay, classic. fair enough. Well, whatever. I mean, it's like Turn you know, it, movie classics. Like Chud. an 80s horror flick about some creature yeah. from beyond, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bonus points if you can tell me what Chud stands for. Hold on. Because uh, it is an acronym. Yes. Um Chris hates underwear day. Mm. <laughs> Chemical hazmat underwater demon. Chris, no, Chris even handles better. umbrellas delicately. <laughs> what is As it? we all should. Yeah. Uh, no, it is cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Oh. oh, that's on my birth certificate. I was wondering what that stood for. That's good. <laughs> that's my nickname in high school, actually. All right. <laughs> So yeah, like it it lived in my memory as this like classic 80s horror movie and I love horror. So the fact that I never saw it is kind of bizarre, but I I will be honest, I don't go and pick up a lot of the like classics probably like I should. Yeah. So I was very excited to watch this and yeah, hopped on the couch and popped it in and you know, well, popped it in. I haven't. I didn't put anything in. It was on digital streaming. <laughs> so you pushed. You, you depressed the button That's on the right. remote. <laughs> That's exactly what I did. So yeah, that was my very recent first experience with the thing. I love it. And both of you made great mentions that it's a great transition. That I had an '80s experience in the '90s is when I first encountered the thing. Was it was something we picked up at Hollywood Video Friday oh. night for a sleepover <laughs> with friends. Yes. Going to the movie store and just all you really had was the cover. You may have never seen the trailer. You just see the box art and you can read the yeah. back. There's like, meh, I don't know, four or five sentences and two or three shots of the movie on the back of the box. Yeah. But you saw that that thing, that glowing guy in a parka and it seemed so mysterious and so imposing. And we just picked it up and we're like, oh, this sounds this sounds cool. And I don't think any of us slept that night. Afterwards, we're like, let's just play Mario Kart all night. No one should go to bed. No one leaves alone. Everyone goes to the bathroom in pairs. It's very dangerous. I was going to say, that turns a sleepover basically into the whole, okay, Wait. which one of you is infected moment. Right. It was more like a wakeover. Like, no one went to sleep. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so I, I, I want to get into everyone's watch experiences with this. I'm so excited because this is I, I loved rewatching this again. Is there mm. a favorite form of the thing that you guys like? My favorite is immediately preceding the defibrillator paddle scare is after they set it on fire and the head detaches itself oh, from yeah. the body. Oh, yeah. And my favorite part is when the spider legs pop out of the skull <laughs> such and a it's good that, effect it's that sound of like somebody like cracking their knuckles right into yeah. like the sound effect like as they, these things pierce the skull and then it stands up on these little like spindly crab spider legs and it is it, oh, it gives you the heebie-jeebies just looking at it it's yeah goosebumps that's such a good one which leads back to my i think a lot of people's favorite line you gotta be effing kidding me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's amazing. Chris? I don't know. Maybe the first one, just because up until that moment, you're not sure what's going on, right? And all hmm. of a sudden, it's the the husky, the dog, or is Malamute? Yeah. I think it's like one of the two. I don't actually it's know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like the dog and its transformation, which, oh, poor little puppers. But like, yeah. <laughs> And is that the one where like the face comes out and it's kind of like a dog-like face of the creature? Yeah, it's like, it's, like it's looking technically sideways. a bunch of t- tongues and oh oh I thought you were talking about the thing that launches at childs. That's like a bunch of dog tongues and teeth. That's like oh. it looks like a flower. Uh, but uh, yeah, exactly. It's a dog head that pops out of the thing. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of like that's the first time you see it, and so like at that point. Sure, it keeps changing forms and shapes and such, but like at that mm-hmm. point, you really don't know what exactly it's it is, what it looks like, what's it going to be. Yeah, um, and now you're like, oh, there's some sort of creature inside that's like popping out of your entire body. Yeah, maybe second. I think everyone really loves the like the jaws on the stomach. So good, such that's a great yeah, effect. For sure. That's a wild I mean, munch. Yeah, it is shocking. Yeah, if you don't know that it's coming. Right. Right. I think with the thing, I mean, among many things, but I think what the thing does about the thing, the actual creature, the best is like the movie slowly peels back the abilities of the thing. And it just keeps getting worse mm. what it is yeah. capable of. And and so for me, too, like the dog, I don't know, the dog blob, it's like a kid had a bunch of toys on a counter and took Play-Doh and rolled them all together and the toys are now in the Play-Doh. Yeah. But the minute Childs lights the flamethrower and two giant ripped, like they mm-hmm. look like arms from the fly. Yeah. Pop up, grab the ceiling and pulls the whole thing out. It's this moment of like, oh God, it's sentient. It can evolve to adapt to danger in the moment. And now it's outside and they don't know where it went. Like that moment I was like, oh no. Like, yeah. did mm. you guys have an oh no moment of like, Oh, this is going to get real bad. Like I watched it with a group of people a couple years ago before COVID when we were still doing in-person movie parties at our house. Oh, yeah. And we had people that had never seen it before. Like my favorite thing was I wasn't even watching the movie. I was just watching people <laughs> at key scenes. <laughs> and there is that like you're, you're not you're not wrong about like the oh, no moment. But it was. The exact beginning of the dog transformation. Oh, yeah. Because if you can't remember it, it's the dog gets put in with the rest of the dogs. And it's just sitting there staring at a wall. And it looks like it it's acting alien. And all the other dogs are starting to be like, what the heck is this thing in here? And then its face completely splits open like a flower. Mm. And the skull drops out <laughs> yeah. of where its head is. And a tongue comes out of the hole of where the skull was. And that moment is everybody in the room is just going, what are we getting into? 
Because, as you said, it just continues to just snowball into hell. Like, you are on, yeah, you're in a 747 headed straight for the ground with those transformations. (laughs) You have no idea what's happening next. That's awesome. I want to do a little Quentin Tarantino. We're going to jump to the end, then come back to the middle. Guys, why don't we just wait here for a little while and see (laughs) See what what happens? happens. What do you think? (laughs) At the end of the movie, McCready, Childs, are either the thing? Ah, I've seen the movie many, many times, and I've thought about it many, many times. And this last time that I watched it with the director's commentary, even Kurt Russell and John Carpenter don't know. John Carpenter says, people ask me all the time, and I always just tell them, I don't know. (laughs) Because he, he doesn't know. And I think it's better that way, not knowing. Because it's already a pretty depressing ending. Yeah. But, like, not knowing and... Hoping that they're both fine and are really, this is their last act of actual heroism. Oh, yeah. By being like, all right, we've got to sacrifice ourselves now is, I think, a pretty uplifting kind of ending. As long as you really believe that neither of them are the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Even in that director's commentary, uh, Kurt Russell makes the comment of like, if people even start to talk about it, they're missing the point of the movie. That it's Mm -hmm. like, these dudes just went through all this mayhem and they still don't know. They're right back at square one. Like, no progress has been made, except there's no base and everyone else is dead. (laughs) He's like, that's the point, (laughs) how destructive paranoia is. Not like, who's the monster or who's not. Yep. But it's still like, this has been the big talking point for over, what is it, over 40 years now Mm -hmm. of where they are, weren't they? Chris, despite Kurt Russell's negative, scathing, judgmental take, do you you have a theory, (laughs) a philosophy you like to believe? No, because I don't want to know either. I have said this a lot in horror movies, especially. I love ambiguous endings. I don't like Mm. getting everything explained to you. I don't like these movies to have a tidy bow wrapped up. That to me is the best gift a horror movie gives you where you can sit here and talk about it 40 years later and no one's like, well, I like your theory, but we know the real answer is. Or John Carpenter has definitively stated it's canon that ABC. Now you'll hear those discussions because he said multiple things over the years, but ultimately it's been contradictory. So we're still back to where, you know, what Mikey said or what he said on the commentary in that moment, which is, I don't know either. Yeah, I think that's the best way that you can end it. You know, this is a very Lovecraftian tale, and Lovecraft has one of my Mm -hmm. favorite horrifying quotes, which is, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. Yeah. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. So let's write that out forever. I don't need a sequel. I don't need to know that McCready got out. I don't need to know that Childs was the thing, and he... Much like a Tyrannosaurus Rex made his way to the mainland and, uh, you know, takes Manhattan like Jason. I don't know. Like, I don't need any of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, for four decades, the two leading philosophies are uh, people who are not infected have a little bit of a shine in their eyes. Their eyes are a little illuminated, which is which is nonsense. But that's like the leading thing you hear people talk about. And, and one thing real quick, the, the shine thing is something that I believe someone actually – with the production, I don't think it was Carpenter, but I feel like somebody did actually say they they shot it that way. Yeah, Dean Cundy, the lighting director. Yeah, so they did purposefully shoot it that way, but I think people – but that was for a scene. 
Yeah. Like that's for the interrogation scene. So I, or the, I'm sorry, the blood testing scene. Mm. And so I think people are extrapolating that out to every single scene. And I don't think that's what the filmmakers had in mind. That's at least my understanding. No, totally. Absolutely. And, and, and the other one is how much smoke is coming out of people's mouths when they're outside. Mm. Thinking oh, yeah. that this, how cold they are. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And there's always, you know, there's a difference at that end scene with Childs and McCready because um, a lot is coming out of. Doesn't Childs have no breath? Like you can't see his breath at all. Isn't that right? I thought it was the opposite. Hey there, listeners. Quick note from editor Chris. In this part of the discussion, we talk briefly about the alcohol theory and the effects it would have on seeing someone's breath, but we had the details reversed. So just to clarify, you can see McCready's breath in this scene, not Child's. Which, to Ben's point, some have taken as an indication Child's may be the thing. But of course, we don't know, and as Kurt Russell says, misses the whole point. So we're left to wonder. Now, back to our discussion. Mikey, one of the reasons you're here is your expertise in horror movies. And you do have a very strong love of Halloween. Oh, yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious, I would love to hear your analysis of like how you think this trapped in a place with a monster, a group of people <laughs> movie compares to like Halloween slasher movie. I think... That if you're looking at a sci-fi horror movie that's close to a slasher, I think Alien is the better comparison. Oh, yeah. Okay. I love it. Because the alien, while it does, you know, gestate in the guy's stomach, pop out, and then turn into the giant xenomorph, it doesn't go through all the different transformations and mutations that the thing does. Like, the thing, I feel like is almost more grounded in science fiction, even though Alien is on a spacecraft set in the future. And this was set, you know, quote unquote, present day. But the creature itself is far more alien in the thing than it is in Alien, funnily mm. enough. Oh, yeah. Like, obviously, it's got, you know, some of the the slasher tropes of, you know, being isolated situation, people getting killed off in strange ways and one by one. Uh, but... You don't have the group of obnoxious teenagers. I mean, these are all full-grown men. They actively make intelligent decisions and deduce things intelligently, which one of my favorite things in the movie is when I talked about the head crab, the head spider. Yeah. That is how McCready realizes, hey, that part of his body wasn't on fire yet, realized it could get away and preserve itself. So if I take a little bit of a blood... And put a hot, uh, smoking hot needle in it. Part of that blood is going to react and try and get away. So that's pretty cool. That's his deduction, and like they take something that could have just been written as a cool scene of we're going to do this blood test next, and you know it's going to be really tense and scary. But they found a way in world to actually find a reason for it and make it make sense, mm. and not doing it in a way where they're just. Let me give you, you know, 30 lines of expository dialogue of how I came up with this test. Yeah. But literally just is in a moment of action and like horror and panic of, oh, I realized something then here we're going to do this. I think one of the unique things about the thing, and we kind of joked about, we've joked about it several times, is like in Alien, if someone goes off alone or in Halloween, they go off alone. You're like, that dude's toast. They're not coming back. This is bad news. But like 
It's actually when everyone's together in the thing that's the scariest. Because you're like, who's ready to explode and kill everyone? Like, you don't (laughs) know. You actually want them apart from each other so they won't hurt one another. Like, Uh it's it's a great flip. Yeah, it subverts the trope of, like, safety in numbers. Because, you know, in your typical horror movie, when the whole group is together, that is your implicit understanding that okay nothing too bad's gonna happen now our group is together you're right ben it's when they all go off in the i heard something in the woods let me go inspect and you're like no (laughs) but the fact that you have everyone together in that blood test scene is like really chilling because you're like okay something isn't gonna go well here and Mm -hmm. you don't know who and so yeah it, it really plays with that expectation and kind of turns it on its head which is very brilliant. Love Turns it so it on much. Yeah. Crab head? Turns it on its crab head. <laughs> Turns it on its crab head. So, okay, I, I want to go, I mean, we don't go shot by shot, but I like, there's some scenes I just want to go through because they're so good. Mm-hmm. I love how the, just the movie starts where it's a helicopter and a mm. dude is trying to shoot a dog who is booking it across the icy tundra. Yeah. And immediately you're like, why is this happening? Like the best movies. <laughs> yes. Leave the, what did the dog do? And like the some of the best movies are like have a narrative that introduces questions that answers aren't like readily apparent, but the audience like has to know. Like mm-hmm. what do you guys like the opening with the dog? What do you think? Like I said, I saw it watching it with a group. Every single person that hadn't seen it to a fault was like, why are they shooting this dog? Run, <laughs> run dog, run. Like they were just cheering for this dog the whole time. And then when you get to the part where, yeah, it finally gets in the kennel and it's been acting weird the whole time. They're like, I don't like this dog. <laughs> <laughs> Something's wrong. This dog's off. Like within 20 minutes, they've completely turned on this dog. And they're like, this dog was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I wish they had got him. Chris, were you rooting for, your, for the dog or were you were like, get him, helicopter? No, I mean, just like Mikey said, I had the same experience of like, you know, what on, <laughs> what on earth is going on here? Like the fact that it opens with a question and oh, a, yeah. an intriguing one. Because, yeah, I mean, this is not just get off my lawn. You know, your dog, <laughs> your dog pooped on my lawn. Yeah, this is something that's obviously <laughs> it pulls you in right away. And you're like mm. leaning closer to the television. Like, hold on, this doesn't make any sense. Did you guys catch, like, I've probably watched this movie six or seven times, like, and I still don't know, what are these guys supposed to be doing in Antarctica? Like, why are they stationed there? Doesn't it just say that they're a army research team? I mean, no one ever seems to talk about what they're researching. I would assume they work for, or they're like a scientific research team. I, I would assume they're taking, like, samples from glaciers and, like, trying to date the ice that they drill into. Like, the standard stuff is what I think of, but... The thing is, though, is that our main characters are not the science people. I mean, (laughs) like Kurt Russell's character, he's the helicopter pilot. Right. Uh, Keith David's Childs, he is some sort of like mechanic uh, or handyman around the place. And then all the people that like all the doctor jobs, like those guys are some of the first people that are killed off. The actual researchers. Yeah. Okay. So we never really get a chance to look into it. In the short story, they're studying electromagnetic fields. Oh, like that's, okay. It's more explained, and they go into a lot of detail in the part that I did listen to. That helps a lot. But yeah, I think my suspicion is that it was a conscious choice to make it a little ambiguous and not 100% clear as to what they were even doing there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That's my feeling, just based on like some of Carpenter's choices. Yeah. Yeah, then you don't get bogged down in a bunch of expository dialogue once again and ultimately it doesn't matter right like it's yeah i mean we're curious but it doesn't really 
matter. I mean, the if they were there studying how to be experts in extraterrestrial annihilation, that would be useful <laughs> to the plot. But they were not. Or if they're they suddenly going to introduce some sort of ice drilling machine that they were going to try and kill the creature with, then yeah, right, sure. Right. Wait, oh my god, I'm so glad you said that. Okay, ice drilling machine, boring, coring. So when they all go to like Camp Norway and mm-hmm. they find the excavated ship, yeah. there is no way that camp had that much explosives to excavate a ship that large, that deep down. Uh, I literally just watched the original this evening. Uh, since we had five day break in oh, between good. the two good. halves of this episode, <laughs> okay. I took it upon myself to watch the original again. And they use, or they attempt to use, because they end up destroying the craft, uh, oh. but they use thermite to melt through the ice, which white phosphorus thermite burns, you know, like crazy hot as the sun kind of thing, and for an extended amount of time. And so. Maybe if they had enough of that, but yeah, I I don't know how they would have. I mean, it, it looks like the much. ship is the size of a city block, and it's four yeah, it's, stories yeah. down in the ice. It's huge, yeah. But I mean, at the time, you don't care because it's well, like sure. the spectacle of it. You're just like, holy crap! How'd that thing wow. get there? And like this yeah. big thing in Antarctica. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Which is funny because in the original, it's like the size of like. You know, a modern day suburban or something like it is not it is yeah. not a huge spacecraft like it is in this. It's like the size of the one that they find uh, underneath Blair's shack later in the film. Which hmm. like, OK, you brought it up like I, I feel <laughs> so, like <laughs> Blair is operating in a time warp because like it feels like the whole movie's 48 hours and Blair has built an entire tunnel system and a spaceship like under. Well, they are. There was a shack like or, like there's a. uh there's already a trap door in the floor to go down to this. And it, oh, I right. think they mention it. They, it's There's some sort of dialogue saying it's like a workshop or something down there. Oh, okay. well, which I would assume maybe choice. the outside entrance to it is like snowed in kind of thing. But now that you brought it up, it has brought up one thing that I just thought of when oh, I first, when I just rewatched this again was yes. clearly it's building the spaceship, right? Yeah. Could they have just let it build it and go home and the movie ends and everybody's fine? <laughs> <laughs> it's like not my circus, not my monkey. It's just Peace like out, listen, thing. everybody here just keeps trying to burn me. I just want to leave. Yeah, let me build my VW Beetle here in the shed, and I'll go home. But I mean, I don't think it had Google Maps pulled up where we knew its loca- yeah. like its destination. I mean, it yeah. could easily have just you know skipped the ocean and landed you know For sure. in Europe or whatever, and all of a sudden. But yeah. it is funny to think of it just being like, you know, I just want to leave, guys. Please just, you know, ignore me. Yeah, totally. Like, like we know the xenomorph, an alien, like, we, it's there to reproduce. They wants to grow yeah. its masses. There's chest bursters. We never know what the thing's motivation is. If, if it's trying to collect so it can adapt, all right, first yeah. human it kills, mission accomplished. We have an earthling. Now go home. Leave. Yeah. Go, go bother someone else. And that's the thing in the original, they very much set it up as the fact that this thing wants to take over the earth. Mm. Like, as you mentioned, it's more plant-based yeah. in the original. And so the idea is that it crash landed on earth. It originally had wanted to go somewhere where it could like, quote unquote, plant its seeds and like grow and reproduce and eventually take over the planet. But it crashed in Antarctica and it can't do it anymore. And now it needs to try and get back to the mainland. Uh, so like, yeah, it yeah. actually is... A monster villain in that one but in this one other than the whole computer simulation when he runs through like what would happen if it would get to a populated area and how quickly it would reproduce and take over but like the actual thing itself like other than 
attacking and assimilating the crew there, there's no real motivation of what it's actually there for. And in fact, it's probably a stronger, now that I'm sitting here talking it out, it's probably a stronger indicator of it it just wanting to leave. Sure. If what it's doing is trying to take over a human that it knows it can build a ship with. It's, you know, dexterity and like actual fingertips and like... <laughs> Oh yeah, I haven't I haven't read it. We'll get to it in contemporary culture, but there's there's a novelization that's told from the creature's point of view. Oh, really? And I would love if the creature's like as scared as everyone else. Like it's just trying to get out. It's like everyone's trying yeah. to torch me. I just need to build a ship again. Oh my god, <laughs> where are they now? They're coming down in my hole. Oh god. You mentioned the Earth takeover. Just because like most of us don't calculate multiple years by the unit hours. I think it's Doc, but like it asked the computer, like, you mm. know, the graphics that are of asteroids level quality. Um, and it's like a gazillion <laughs> hours until it takes over the Earth. If you just run the numbers, it's three years and one month until everyone on Earth is part of the thing, is assimilated. Oof. I knew I was going to put you guys on the spot with this question, but I thought like, meh, maybe I'll try experts first. I actually have two friends who have been stationed at McMurdo Station in Antarctica. Kate wow. was actually a firefighter and John was a meteorologist and they're married. They met there and got married. And I emailed them just to ask, like, are flamethrowers a real common tool on an Antarctica base? <laughs> and unfortunately, I never heard back. But like, is that a what do you get? Like, that just seems everyone knows how to use it. And it's very important to everyone. I think they brought it up in the commentary, even like Kurt Russell says something about it. And John Carpenter was just like. Well, they got to melt the ice somehow, like just kind of like making a joke. But yeah, I don't think that there was probably flamethrowers where your friends were stationed. Yeah, right? Like it seems a little extreme. Maybe they just use thermite. There's like the weird kind of looking flamethrower that looks like it's, you know, like a Coke can on the end of a stick attached to a propane tank. That's an actual like de-icing, like an old de-icing tool for like de-icing aircraft and everything. So that one made sense. But no, when they're strapping on the full on... World War Two era, like napalm throwing right. flamethrower. Then no, yeah, I'm probably not. Is what is in their story? No, it's like the Ghostbusters two slime thrower. It just looked bizarre. You mentioned the blood test earlier, Mikey. Like, I feel like whenever people have to donate blood, or they're gonna do like a blood pack, like a blood brother high five. Mm. People cut like the most sensitive <laughs> parts. They're so deep. All these yeah. dudes cut like halfway through their thumbs in that scene. Why? That's funny is you bring it up and John Carpenter in the commentary says at screenings he's attended, nobody's bothered by the dog transformation or the guy's chest ripping over and the head falling off and turning into a spider. But everybody cringes at the cutting oh. of the thumbs with oh, the scalpel. God. <laughs> it's so harsh. My reading of it on the overreaction of a lot of people to it is you've been fed so much insane and crazy looking blood and guts yeah. so far in the movie that all of a sudden that now here's this one real thing that you know could actually happen. It's just a scalpel and it's just a thumb. And so when that happens, your your mind latches onto that and is something that could actually happen and is like, look how gross that is. Oh yeah. Even though we just we just saw horrible, horrible things. That whole scene is maniacally well written and terrifying oh, to me. Man. The idea it, that you're tied yeah. To a chair with a transforming monster, and you know what that monster is capable of. Yeah, that whole sequence is just masterful. And it's one of the worst deaths. Like when the the head splits open, grabs another dude's head, picks him up vertically, and you you can hear shades like screaming inside the monster. Like, oh, that is that is haunting. That part haunts me. (laughs) All right, I'm jumping to the end again, you guys. 
So, McCready's victorious line when he destroys <laughs> the thing. It's not, get away from her, you be. It's, yeah, F you too. But he says the real word. Does that feel like real awesome and strong to you guys? Or does it fall short? It's no Arnold one-liner, but it reads right for McCready. That's the best he could do. That's the best McCready can muster. <laughs> yeah, and my favorite thing about the ending of like him blowing it all up is they foreshadow it. Like they foreshadow the entire movie with him playing chess at the beginning of the film. Oh, yeah, nice. he's playing chess on a computer, a chess computer game and he's being all smug about it. And then the computer beats him. And what does he do? He literally blows it up. He opens the yeah. hatch to all the components and pours his drink into it and blows it up. And so faced with a problem that he can't beat, what does he do? He blows it up. (laughs) You know, it's funny you mentioned that, like, that's all that McCready can muster. Because, like, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell developed this whole background for McCready. That he was going to be this, like, nom war helicopter pilot. And so he's got, like, PTSD and alcoholism. He can't sleep with the insomnia. And, like, that never made it in the movie. But sort of, like, method acting, that's what's in Russell's head. Which explains a lot of like the choices and why he can like take he can totally handle the really intense violence. Mm-hmm. And he says to Childs at one time, like, I'm a real light sleeper, Childs. Like Yeah. It kinda <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting background. I, I like that one a lot. A part of that helicopter background, this is a fun story. So in around fourteen minutes, you know, they take off to go to Camp Norway. And apparently the actual helicopter pilot in it was like, Hey Kurt Russell, do you want to fly the helicopter? And Russell was like, <laughs> Yeah, I wanna fly the helicopter. And so when they take off to leave, right when they're off the ground, you can see the helicopter shake around a whole bunch. And that's Russell taking the controls, trying to fly the helicopter. Yeah. They mentioned that in the commentary about how the bush pilots that they used for all the flying stuff were pretty crazy. Yeah. I believe one of them even offered to actually crash one of the helicopters. What? For a pay raise. But they're like, no, that's that's okay. No, that's all right. Thank you so much. I'm loving all of these nuggets. I feel like we'd be remiss getting out of chemistry without talking about what we love about this movie so much and why it works so well. Yes, Yes. absolutely. Get into it. So, I I mean, for me, I think the whole idea of the confusion and paranoia and second guessing is really what makes this movie work so well. And I think because you have a lot of ambiguity in it, it really just builds that in subtle ways. Again, we don't know why they're there researching. We don't know what they're doing. All of the things that we've talked about where I don't think Carpenter gives you explicit detail. I love that aspect of it. Tonally, it just works so well. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think we can all agree the practical effects look so good. I mean, they're just, once again, special effects just can't really hold a candle to the practical effects that are in this movie. And sure, like they might look a lot better as special effects, but, you know, just not being... like a a real component I think is Mm -hmm. you know just it sets it apart the lighting in this movie is so great yeah there's like blues to convey cold there's oranges for fire and heat and I think those again are very subtle but they really if you go back and watch it and you see a lot of the contrast of oranges and blues that's really fantastic and the last thing I loved so so much and you know we talked a little bit about this in history class is Dum, dum. Just that bass dum, note mm-hmm. and that repetition. We didn't need a lot of music for this. I thought that repetitive kind of thing was even more effective than yeah. if you had like, 
you know, violins, you know, something like that. Like when they're running around, like, like just Yaki Sacks played while they ran around. Well, obviously that too. But I don't know. It was so subtle and it's a very understated score. But I think it was so, so effective. And I think it comes back to its simplicity. You don't need anything more than just those, that one note repeating twice. And just put that on a loop. So anyway, I just thought those were things I thought were so cool. But I'm really curious what other things that you all found just so fun, interesting, awesome about the movie. There's a great YouTube video, a mini doc out there by the Morbid Zoo. And they they had two observations that I thought were really, really, really good. That it's interesting this group of guys – oh, and I got to get back to a group of guys. That's a good point. Uh, that these these guys have worked together so long that they sort of settled into their eccentricities together. They're to to quote, they're being alone together. Mm-hmm. Like they're just so normalized in it. And I, I forget if we mentioned that in history class or not, but Carpenter made a very conscientious choice to like have only guys at the base. Hmm. His real honest answer, the out of the gate, was I haven't seen a movie of just a male cast in a very long time. <laughs> He's like, he, hmm. he just thought that would be interesting. But the other reason he kind of went on is like, what what are male dynamics when there's no one around to peacock for? Like, if you're not <laughs> trying to impress a lady, what happens with guys uh-huh. who are together for a long time in isolation? So this is why Carpenter, like, shoots the dudes with, like, sunglasses on, their backs to the camera, like, really breaks a lot of filmmaking rules. Because all these guys are isolated. They're weird. They're breaking norms. Like, they're it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. But the last quote before I get into like what I really loved about it was like this really this creeped me out. This still haunts me from the Morbid Zoos documentary that um, when you become prey, you lose the privilege of hoping for anything greater in your life or identity beyond becoming meat or food, <laughs> which is like what these dudes are experiencing. Like, that's all you yeah. are now, man. You are food for something that is chasing you. You're a gazelle. Good luck. <laughs> like, that is terrifying. I mean, gazelles are flamethrowers. Let's be real. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now that's the thing cut I want to see. Gazelles with flamethrowers. Oh man, I'd watch that. Name. On that band name. Yeah. Oh, that's a great band name. Yeah. I mean, Chris, I don't want to reiterate everything you said, but like the the practical effect technicalities, I love are incredible. I find the acting extremely good and just the pace Mm -hmm. of the movie is really good. Like I said, like the slow unraveling of what the thing can actually do and the dog in the beginning running away. It's just the pacing is great. I just love the story. But what makes the movie timeless, I think, is cool is this idea of paranoia. That's the theme of the movie. It's Mm -hmm. not an alien thriller. It's like this innate thing that happens between humans of just like when you're in a small community, you can start to distrust other people and that paranoia even though you have no evidence and i think that's just really fascinating i mean this movie was written around the time when like um the cold war was going on Mm -hmm. and it's just this paranoid distrust we don't have any overt evidence yet we just know we really don't like them and they don't really like us anything could happen at any moment and it's just that tension and that still happens in a variety of ways and kind of as kurt russell says in the director's commentary Paranoia is so destructive. I mean, in the movie, their paranoia is validated at the end because you don't know where the monster is. But but yeah. like, still, paranoia is so like dangerous to society. It's a timeless story. I love that. Mm-hmm. Mikey, horror aficionado, watcher <laughs> of the thing at age six at your birthday party. Um, what, Not quite. What did you love about the thing? Why do you keep watching this movie? What it boils down to is like both you guys hit on it really well is – that I've been sitting here talking about like the crazy effects and how kind of in your face and insane they are. But what really makes them 
as good as they are is what the movie doesn't do. Oh. It's edited so perfectly. There's no wasted dialogue. There's no expository info dump of like trying to explain things. It's just like this happened, so this happened, so this happened. Like mm. it's it's just dominoes that fall the whole way down. And there's no like, you know, we don't get along because uh, you're black and I'm white. And there's like, mm-hmm. that's the crazy thing that I love about this movie, too, is that there is no mention of race whatsoever between these guys. And like, they're a complete mix yeah. of ethnicities in there. And they're all there in the same situation. They get along. They're all just trying to help each other to survive. There's just no like craziness on top of craziness, it's the craziness is only coming from the alien, and these are normal people trying to deal with it. Yeah. And that makes it so much more terrifying. And you were talking about the the color scheme and like the lighting in it, Chris. Yeah. And I agree. I love it. It's just gorgeous. And the one thing that they brought up in the commentary, which really clicked and was like, oh, that makes so much sense, is that all of the wardrobe and the set decoration colors that they chose were very muted and washed out so that when you got into the insane moments of blood and like alien horror those would pop even more yeah. and it, it does like it's you know yeah, a, a lot of grays and you know beiges and greens and then obviously the lighting when the lights go out of the blue snow reflections coming through and everything and then yeah as soon as there's that bright red of blood it really just stands out so much more in that kind of environment. Uh, and as you said, the score, once again, understated. You don't need huge amounts of horns. That was one thing that watching the original earlier this evening, like it is, it's your typical 50s, you know, sci fi or horror movie where they just, there's like a score <laughs> for every single minute of that film. Yeah. And like, yeah, trying to make the scary things scarier by making scary noises with the music. And it just doesn't serve it. And the idea of being an all male cast, the one, or there's two female cast members like that are on the base in the original. One oh, yeah, of them right. serves as nothing more than a love interest. Oh dear. And the other one has like two scenes, but she's old and clearly unavailable, so nobody cares about her. Like, <laughs> like they're just your token fifties female leads and broads, as they would say in yeah, the fifties. Exactly. Kind of broads yeah. in Antarctica. Uh, there, there. I will concede that the uh, female love interest, she's got some snappy dialogue, and she does have some really good back and forth uh, with the captain character that she's kind of involved with. But once again, like anytime there's action, it's like get her behind us, and <laughs> you hide behind this pillow while we do all the action. And while yeah, there is no female characters in this film, it's not like there's a bunch of dudes sitting around having quote-unquote locker room talk about women while they're there. Yeah. I don't think they mention women at all. No. I think the only women is the voice of the chess computer. <laughs> it is the that's computer. right. Yeah. Yep. Played by Adrian Barbeau, uh, wife of John Carpenter at the time. But yeah, I think it's perfect because of what it doesn't do. And I honestly think it is one of those perfect horror films. Yeah. I, I love this movie. This is easily top 10 or film of all time for me. Oh, yeah. I feel like we just got Mikey's final analysis in math class. That was <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very yeah. comprehensive. I, I do want to touch on something you said, though, which is the what it doesn't do. That's such a great point because so many horror movies run afoul of this where they want to manufacture a tandem issue between two characters, right? Yes. They're fighting over a thing. It's some past transgression that yeah. they have to deal with. Or there's some ham-fisted love story or – 
even the hint of a love interest. Mm-hmm. And those don't ever really serve any great purpose. I just feel like that's Hollywood. Like, yeah, we got to have a, you know, we got to have a dame in there for somebody to, you know, be we interested the, in. The women into the seats in the movie theater. Right, right. Like, <laughs> it, it all just feels very, you know, ham-fisted and unnatural. And that's a great raise i think for that decision for carpenter is to we don't need the excess like this isn't necessary to tell the story and i hadn't thought of it in that way but i love that point so much my one more favorite thing that i learned from listening to the commentary uh was that when they go to the norwegian camp uh and it's all burnt out and everything that is actually the american camp set after they've burned it down later in the movie. So it was shot out of sequence where they shot all the stuff in the American camp, burned the buildings down, and then shot the scenes where they go to the Norwegian camp that's been burned down. First of all, that's very economically savvy. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy economically savvy. Second, that's very cool. I didn't find that in my research. That's awesome trivia. Now, was it conscious or was it basically like you spent $15 million or whatever was on this movie, so you don't get to... (laughs) No, from the way that it sounded on the commentary, it was like, yeah, that's how we planned to do it. Very cool. Which which makes sense because John Carpenter, you know, he's a filmmaker. This is only his third film, third major release uh, film. And so, you know, at the time he was used to, you know, making sure he's counting his pennies and getting the most out of what he's spending. Guys, I smell something a little tasty wafting down the hallway. Why don't we strap on our roller skates and go down the hallway and see what Nalls is cooking up for us in the cafeteria? Yeah, maybe we can get him to turn down that stereo. Yeah, it's a little loud in there. And then we'll come back in contemporary culture to see what happened to the thing after the 80s. Nothing good. <laughs> no, that's no, not true. Nothing good. There's a crazy new thing from Volkswagen that comes with the top up, with the top down, with the doors off, with the windshield down. A car that feels at home wherever you feel at home. A car you can dress up after you get it to look any way you want it. A car that can be anything can only be called The Thing by Volkswagen. Beware and warning! This book is different from other books. You and you alone are in charge of what happens in this story. If that brings back childhood memories of reading past your bedtime and keeping your fingers positioned just so in order to go back and cheat death, then you are part of the Choose Your Own Adventure Generation, the fourth best-selling children's book series of all time. Since 2006, Choose Your Own Adventure has relaunched copies of original 80s bestsellers as well well as all new books, tabletop games, and graphic novel adaptations of the famous game book series. If you decide to use all of your numerous talents and much of your enormous intelligence to introduce interactive game books to a new generation, visit CYOA.com. Use code 80SHIGH for 20% off your first order. That's code 80SHIGH. That was delicious. My stomach feels a little bloated. Don't push too hard on it. It might open his giant jaws and (laughs) destroy you guys. I tell you, I was so paranoid. I put a burning hot copper wire into my red jello just to make sure it really wasn't the blood of some monster. I was was going to go to lunch. That was good. That was what was going on. So, like we mentioned in history class, this film did not do well. 
when it came out. It was it was panned, it bombed, uh, it was not it was not great. You know what I thought was interesting? It, it actually is considered sort of a a spiritual partner to Blade Runner because they mm-hmm. both came out around the same came time, the same weekend. They were both sci-fi. They both didn't do well, and then both like later developed this massive cult following. So they're sort of in parallel, but this absolute destruction of the thing in the early 80s really like shook Carpenter to his core. Yeah, he's always taken bad reviews of his films really hard, which I find really refreshing. Yeah, it makes him really real. He feels like an authentic dude. I mean, Mikey, you you know Carpenter well. Like, do you have any insight into like how Carpenter was hit with the reception? The funny, like he talks about how they had such a great time making it. I mean, seeing the dailies, like people were getting blown away and everything. And then when it came out, it just didn't hit. And really the one thing that stood out to me that he said, like hurt him the most was like people saying that it was mean spirited. Yeah. Which really does. Yeah. It really, it would bug me too, because like I said, like it's all about, like it's about the paranoia. It's about the alien horror, but it's really, I mean, at the core of it is like all these guys really come together and nobody's like second guessing. Like nobody's like, you shouldn't be in charge because I don't trust you. Like right. there's a little bit of back and forth. Uh, there's with that McCready. one guy. Um, who's the dude who's like, I don't think I'm up for it. Like they offer him to be yeah, the leader. Like the, the guy who has the heart attack. Like yeah, right, the right. head of security guys like here, I think you should take over. And he's just like, I don't think I, yeah, yeah, yeah it's awesome. I'm up for it. And once they choose McCready, like everybody gets behind him other than when they mistakenly accuse him. Right. Body strapped with dynamite to preserve his yeah. life. But I mean, like when they're in it together, they're in it together. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, I think it was just a lot of, let's be honest, old people who had probably grown up with the original. Yeah. Who then were poo-pooing this new one that, you know, oh, there's blood and guts. And in my original was black and white and we didn't have to do that. And there was yeah. a woman there and she was, she had a man to tell her to what to do. And there's only men in this. What like... It just seems like old man yells at Sky. No, totally. Really and it had an it had an R rating, which can be like yeah. a death knell at the box office. Like teens, teens Back drive then, ticket yeah. sales, and they can't go into this movie. And yeah, and we're looking at you know it is the eighties. It's still the beginning of the eighties, but I mean Friday the Thirteenth had already hit in nineteen eighty. Yeah, and so slashers were on their eyes, and yet if you were going to pay to go see an R rated horror movie, you were going to go see something dumb and fun like another Friday the Thirteenth or a Halloween. Whereas the thing is anything but fun. But like poor Carpenter in 85, he's in an interview and he says, I was called a pornographer of violence. I had no idea it'd be received that way. It was just too strong for the time. I knew it was going to be strong, but I didn't think it would be that strong. He thought like people hated it for its nihilistic and depressing viewpoint at a time when the Mm -hmm. US was in a recession. Maybe it was just, it's a great movie, wrong time. I don't know. It's a hard one because- When's the right time for that movie to come right, out? Like right, maybe right. the last like ten years when people yeah. are because I don't like we've changed from like oh like you know the U.S. is in the recession whatever we want something to distract us we've changed to everything sucks show me something that sucks more right, right so I'll feel better right. about what sucks now <laughs> right. yeah right. well the movie finally gets its cult classic following and Carpenter like perks right up now he's stoked he actually in an interview in 2011 said. The Thing is probably his favorite movie that he yeah. made. He's very excited to happen, and he considers it 
the first of his Apocalypse trilogy. Yeah, I was hoping we'd talk about that. Yeah, so I want I, I want to introduce it, and I want to hear if either of you have seen this and what you know. But so then he does uh, the Prince of Darkness in nineteen eighty seven, mm-hmm. and in the Mouth of Madness in ninety four. Yes, and all three are like cosmic horror because Carpenter loved H. P. Lovecraft. Like, have you guys seen these? What do you know about the Apocalyptic trilogy? So Prince of Darkness is kind of weird. It's slightly sci-fi, but only as much as like. It's an interesting mixture of sci-fi and religion because the story uh, evolves around this church that has this barrel of green goo. Oh, God. It's the only way I can describe it in its basement, which is Satan, maybe? Uh, they, don't ever really, <laughs> they don't ever really like confirm. But then it's about like them researching it and like, what happens. And it's real slow and... It eventually picks up, but uh, it's got Donald Pleasance in it, so like you're at least going to be entertained watching him. But probably not one of Carpenter's better ones. Although technically that's not true, he's made some pretty he made some pretty bad films in the nineties. <laughs> I think he even admits that, so I don't feel too bad saying that. And then the third film, uh, in the Mouth of Madness, is very much if H.P. Lovecraft wrote books that in the modern time set in the modern time it was 1991 or two i think is when that film came out but the stuff in it started happening oh okay. so like yeah. these lovecrafting horrors are starting to bleed into the real world uh there's a little bit of stephen king inspiration in there too with like you know a small town with secrets this almost sounds like Wes craven's new nightmare right where oh. like it's very, it is it is get meta yeah for yeah. sure it's yeah. Sam Neill is a uh, I can't remember if he's a private detective or if he's just he works for uh, a book company. It's been a while since I've seen it, but he gets hired by a book company to track down their like famous uh, their big famous author who's like the antagonist in the film. His name is Sutter Kane uh, because he was supposed to deliver the manuscript for his newest book. And they're getting antsy and they want him to track him down. And as he does so, like he literally descent into this world of like eldritch horrors and yeah. uh, crazy people in town with deformities. And it's really good. Sam Neill is great in it. There's lots of twists and turns. Like you were saying, Chris, it gets pretty meta with a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to watch. Awesome. Although we didn't want it, there are two alternative endings to this movie that are out there. Do they actually film them? So one was actually filmed, and it was on its way to be printed. Oh. When Carpenter and executive Helena Hacker were like, no, 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 let's bring it back. And that ending, it was shot. Kurt Russell gets rescued alone. Childs does not get rescued. And they oh. test his blood, and it shows that he's negative. He's not the monster. And they were like, no, 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 no. We love the yeah, ambiguity. So, like- get rid of it. Happy ending. But the right. worst one is there is a TV cut of the thing. Can you imagine cutting this movie That's for like, okay, television? So <laughs> I will admit I've owned the same Blu-ray copy of the thing for many years. Probably one of my first Blu-rays. I just this week upgraded to the new one. And in the special features on the disc, it says it includes this TV version. Okay. So I'm interested to hear what you have I to say. I can't wait. I just, it would be nuts to see such a violent, gory movie, like how it could make it on television. But, yeah. um, but what's crazy is Sidney Scheinberg edits the movie for television. And at the end, the thing imitates a surviving dog and it escapes the camp. Oh. And that 
just ticks Carpenter off to no end. And he's like, this doesn't count. This isn't the movie. And he said, like, publicly, he thinks it's because Scheinberg was salty for Carpenter not taking his creative ideas on the board during the theatrical cut. I would love to hear your thoughts. If you would watch that and report back, that would be great. Yeah, I will have to let you guys know. In the early 90s, there are a gazillion comics and short stories and novelizations that are also sequels of like what happens after the movie. Oh, really? Dark Horse Comics does a bunch of the comic books. Huh. So there's a two-issue miniseries. There's a four-issue sequel that all gets serialized in 1993. There's an unrelated standalone prequel story, The Thing, The Northern Nightmare. Uh, that's like a digital comic. So there's, there's, you can find out a lot more. There's a Thingiverse, hmm. if you were so interested. Okay, I'm going to run through these real quick. 1998 hits DVDs. 2006, HD DVD version. 2008, Blu-ray. Remember, Blu-ray's all big, but that's where the John Carpenter and Kurt Russell commentary version yep. comes in, which apparently is, I really want to go back and watch it again with their commentary, because it sounds like it's, it's great. just great. 2016 sounds like the one to have. That's a Blu-ray that comes out, 2K resolution, and like a gazillion Cut yeah, scenes, the behind right the scenes, interviews. Yeah, that's the one. That's yeah. apparently the best version to have. It's got all the extra stuff on it, and it looks great. Yeah, there's a huge amount of special features on this thing. That's awesome. There's, there's two more that come out. There's the 4K in 2017, which, again, I learned the hard way with Alien. You need a 4K player and a 4K TV to watch a 4K <laughs> movie. So I've got Alien on 4K without any of the hardware. And then just a couple years ago, there's a 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray. That's like too much. That's a lot. That's like you're in the movie and you're a gazelle with a flamethrower running with everyone else. I have realized that with a lot of older movies that actually upgrading them to something that sharp and high resolution shows the edges of something that you wouldn't have noticed before. Okay. I haven't watched the thing in 4K, but I would assume... Well, I don't know. I mean, it looks amazing on Blu-ray, and you don't notice any no. seams or you know bad spots in the makeup. But I've seen some other films that have been upgraded to HD, and you are like, oh, that makeup job doesn't look good anymore. Right. Yeah, yeah. Go back. Go back where it's blurry and dark. Yeah. Let's talk toys and games. So 2000, McFarlane Toys comes out with a series. McFarlane is like famous for Spawn, really good action figures. They had really cool yeah, action figures. They did the, mo- the movie Monster... Line, oh, yeah, right? like the classic Universal Movie Monster guys. Yeah. Yeah, they did that. But they do the Blair thing and the Norris thing. So the, the choppy chest with the crab head and like the yeah. big snake slither monster at the end. Then there's a McCready figure. There's a dog thing later on. But yeah, there's video games. So 2002, there's a video game of the same name on mm-hmm. PS2, Xbox, and PC. And it follows like a team of U.S. soldiers investigating the aftermath. Like, have either of you played it? I have. Uh, yes, I never finished awesome. it. I didn't ever finish it, but I did. I played a few hours of it. And the really interesting thing about it is it's a pretty early. It was one of those early games where all your choices really mattered. Oh, yeah. When I played it, from what I remember, you always played as one character, but you were also controlling a whole squad. Oh, that's kind of cool. And so you would tell the other people in the squad what they're going to go investigate while you're doing your own thing. Hmm. So then it also, when you meet back up again... Like, there's a lot of suspicion and paranoia of, like, okay, are my guys okay? Have they been corrupted? Ooh. Yeah, there's a whole different multiple ways to play through where, like, you can end up with different endings and different people alive. It played a lot like a Resident Evil type game with, like, a set isometric camera with kind of a, you know, the static set graphic oh, backgrounds. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there wasn't a camera that followed your character the whole time. But I remember it played pretty well and at the time it got really good reviews. 
Uh, dude, I'm so glad that you played it and like got to share that with us. I, you know, I feel like uh, games in the early 2000s have not hit a nostalgia moment yet. Yeah. But there'll be a podcast eventually called like Ots Are Awesome, and they'll talk about <laughs> uh, the thing video game from 2002. It'll be great. If this doesn't sound like me when I was in my early 20s, I don't know what this is. In August of 2003, two hardcore fans of the thing, Todd yeah. Cameron and Steve Crawford, ventured to the remote filming location in Stewart, British Columbia, and found the remains of Outpost 31 and the Norwegian helicopter. Mm-hmm. And Todd has the blade of the chopper. Yeah, he <laughs> was able to yeah scrounge up the blade, and it's in Can his personal you collection. You can imagine like hiking all the way yeah. like, into that area just to see if there's any movie set pieces left. Well, I would assume with climate change, it's probably not buried in snow much these days. I would be a liar if I did not admit that I have trudged through the jungles of Kauai looking for Jurassic Park filming locations. <laughs> Don't they do just like a tour for that? Uh, listen, Mikey. <laughs> tired of your judgmental tone on this podcast. When you're uh, no, they on a do. budget. <laughs> they do. Um, I did one on Oahu where the, where the uh, Gallimimus scene is oh, okay. shot. In a car. The ranch, yeah. A lot of these you have to like hike into and try and find the places. Uh, but uh, man... BC in the middle of nowhere sounds real freaking cold. Yeah. We're getting close to the thing everyone wants to talk about in contemporary culture. I've got two more things. 2005, Sci-Fi Channel planned a four-hour miniseries that would follow really? up. It's, it's about a Russian team that goes and recovers McCready and Childs. Well, their bodies. They, they don't uh. make it. And so it fast-forwards 23 years later, and the thing escapes in New Mexico. Oh. And it's basically the same sort of, let's go get it. It's getting everybody. But it never got, uh, it never got shot. The Russians recovered the, the thing and the bodies, but it, they end up in New Mexico? How does that work? <laughs> okay, this is very complicated, but let me see if I can get there. No. <laughs> Maybe it's Area 51. It's a collaboration with the oh, okay, Russians yeah. underground. I guess, sure. you know, I don't know. Chris, you're nodding. Have you heard of this instance? Have you, do you have like a, a, an unpublished script from this miniseries? <laughs> no, I, just, I saw that same thing that Sci-Fi Channel had attempted to pick it up and do a sequel, which I'm sure... Pretty soon we're going to talk about the prequel that actually did happen. Oh, boy. Uh, Yeah. Much to perhaps many people's chagrin. But yeah. On one hand, I'm kind of glad it's not made only in as much as we're still left to wonder. Like as soon as you make a sequel, it answers the question everybody has been debating. So I'm kind of happy that that's, you know, that was left scrapped. And the last thing before we get to the prequel, in the same year that the prequel comes out, there's a podcast called The Escape Pod. And they did an episode called The Things, and it's told from the point of view of the alien. And just like you said, Mikey, uh, it's like unable to understand why the humans are all hostile towards it. It's like, (laughs) why is everybody trying to burn me? The Thing is freaked out that humans don't shapeshift. It's like, why don't they transform to do other stuff? And it's very scary. And it got a Hugo Award nomination. It was actually quite quite a great show. So I kind of wanted to listen to it. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I have been talking so much in contemporary culture that I need a drink of water. And while I do, you guys, can you tell us about the prequel? Did you watch the prequel, Chris? I did not. I was going to, and then I saw how many stars it had. And I was like, I think I'm okay. I was like, Mikey and perhaps Ben will have it covered. Did you see it, Ben? I did. Okay, yeah. I remember uh, this was during, I mean, what what year came out? 2008, you said? Yeah, October 2011. Oh, 11. Okay. So, yeah, this was still a time when Fangoria was still being published. Fangoria oh, magazine. Yeah. 
which oh. covered all things horror films. Yeah. Uh, and there was a while there where I was subscribed to it. And they brought up that it was happening. And I remember reading about it on the internet and being like, oh, man, this isn't going to be very good. But then it came out that, oh, it's going to be a prequel and it's going to focus on the Norwegian team. Yeah. And I remember thinking, okay, that could be kind of interesting. I mean, we know how it's going to end. But maybe, like, I mean, it, it could be cool if they still do practical effects and, like, keep the spirit of it. And then I remember it coming out and hearing that the director was not happy because mm. they did all the practical effects. And their idea was, was like, we're going to, like, we're going to use some CG, but it's only going to be to, like, get rid of any edges in the makeup. Or, like, it's going to be stuff that's just going to enhance the practical. And what happened was the company or whoever, uh, Universal, I'm assuming, I believe was, uh, or I'm assuming are the people that were behind it, were like, yeah, we're just going to just go over all of your practical effects with CG and completely redid it all in CG. And it looks like CG and it's awful. And I feel horrible for the people that spent all the time like being mm-hmm. like, we're going to do the thing. We're going to be like, we're going to try and like live up to Rob Bottin. It's going to be amazing. And then, yeah, just a studio just being like, nah, it's going to be cheaper this way. Right. Like, just come on. They did the same thing with Benicio Del Toro's Wolfman movie. Oh, Uh, yeah. Like, yeah, Rick Baker, like, designed a whole new, like, transformation sequence and everything. And they were like, nah, we'll just do CG. Can I ask you guys, like, is the movie good? So here's the thing. Yeah, I'm right about to get to that. Okay. Is... What I remember, I haven't seen it since it came out on uh, home streaming media because I didn't go see it in theaters. I refused to pay for it that way. It showed up on Netflix eventually. I watched it on there. And that was probably around 2012. What I remember being in the movie was not only is it a prequel, but they pretty much just remade like all the story beats that Mm -hmm. the remake or that this Carpenter version hits. That one imitates and does as well. And I just remember being really let down. And like, not only am I dealing with not practical effects, but the story itself isn't interesting at all. Like, I'm pretty sure there's even a moment with like a giant monster in the basement that they fight mm. too. Like, I don't know how recently you watched it, Ben, but I'm, I'm assuming since you're not stopping me, I'm hitting what I remember <laughs> right. <laughs> no, you're nailing all the notes right. I mean, I was like you where I watched it right when it came out. So my memory's a little foggy. I think I love the idea of it more than the execution. Yeah. Like, mm. like, especially because McCready like goes through burned out Norwegian camp. The idea to be like, how did this happen? Yeah, how did like, the, how, yeah. There's an ax in the wall. Why did the dude slit his ritz? Who's at the computer? Like to see like how we got to where that camp is. Is such a cool idea. Yeah. Like if they made Rogue One, if this was their Rogue <laughs> One, right, it right. would be amazing. You'd yeah. be like, oh my God. Right? Yeah, that's such a good one. So I know Mary Mary Elizabeth Winstead, she's the lead. Like yes, you're, yeah, she's right. like the McCready substitute. Right. Am I rem- remembering this correctly that she dies before the helicopter sequence and it's just two some like it's it's two other random dudes that like we don't really spend a whole lot of time with in the movie yeah i think you're right and she's sort of shoehorned into like an unnecessary romantic thing with yeah, another I dude at the base that too. Uh, it's Come just on. It's bad decisions top to bottom is what it is. And studio and interference. I wish I knew more about computer programming for this, but there was like a time around here where like the kind of computer graphics that we're using in movies just date terribly. 
Yes. Like well, you you rewatch this movie today and this just Alien looks 3. Bad. Alien 3. Alien 3 hey. is a great example. No, I love it. I actually Oh, I I've, I've got very controversial opinions on Alien 3. Don't get me started. You can't defend the CG, the CG Mike. CG. I'm terrible. not going to defend the CG. I will That's all admit we're saying. That. That's all we're saying. Okay. Yes. All right, let's get out of this horrifying Norwegian base. So yeah, don't bother with the remake unless you are a completionist and feel like you should see it. Right. There you go. And speaking of completionists, Mikey, when you fly back here on a Norwegian helicopter, uh, we've Mm. all got to sit down because in 2017, a board game came out called The Thing Infection at Outpost 31. Did we not play that or did we play the other horror winter, Dead of Winter or whatever? We played Dead Winter, I think. Okay. You play the different characters from the movie, the 82 movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. It sounds actually awesome. I really want to play it. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, Ben, because there's another game that came out in 2022 called The Thing, colon, The Board Game. Perfect. (laughs) Right on the nose. So these are like your typical hidden role, you know, just like the movie plays out, right? Somebody is, you know, the the thing, you don't know who it is, and you I. Assuming mm. there's some deduction. So apparently these games play out somewhat similarly, though the rules are a little bit different. And I don't remember. One's considered a little clunkier than the other. But the funny thing I found is there's also a game that came out called Who Goes There? Oh. I've heard that. I've, maybe I've seen somebody play that before. Who Goes There actually came out in between these two in 2018. I don't know if it's exactly a replication of the original, the short story of which this was derived from, or the novella, I should say. But anyway, I just thought it was kind of funny that there are now three games kind of in-universe. Again, who's who goes there maybe sort of their... Um, I always forget. What's the not Nostromo, but totally Nostromo, but not alien, <laughs> but totally alien one? Uh, Decept- no, I always forget the name of this Nemesis. movie or this game. Nemesis, thank you. I don't know if it's that kind of version, but it's just funny to me that there are three different games out there that you could choose from. So have fun. Yeah. We cannot go without saying, in the last, I mean, now it's starting to get a little old, but five years ago, there was Mm. a massive gaming cultural event that absolutely would not have existed without the thing. And I think this is maybe one of the biggest contemporary culture examples we've ever had of like something that really blew up that was a definite direct inspiration from the thing we talked about on the topic mm-hmm. and that'd be the video game among us mm. yeah and you say it's not so big anymore but it's still very popular uh, on twitch oh really good uh, yeah good. a lot of people a lot of big gamers or streamers are still playing it and yeah getting big views doing it i'm trying to remember did, did we ever play that game did you guys play that game oh yeah, yeah of course we did <laughs> we played it a lot together it was yeah. fun it was good it was I think, a very good time. I think we quit at the time because there was there was a lot of like hacking problems. Like the whoever was the thing could like get away with stuff and move through places they can't move through. Well, yeah. did we have like people coming in who were cheating or right? There was some cheating like problems. Like, yeah, there was there was some issues with randos coming in, and I don't know exactly. I don't remember what the detail was, but we had a lot of good fun. It's a good time. Yeah, that's the one thing that I will say about the game. It was very fun, but it was best played. With a group of people you already know. Yeah, right. Like playing with random people wasn't great. (laughs) They all knew each other. Because weren't we like talking amongst ourselves? I think we had like our own separate chat. So like just the like five of us who were playing or whatever were chatting, but we weren't necessarily talking with the other people. It's a great game. It's a great game. But uh, yeah, a bunch of people trapped on a ship and one person is like a monster that's eating people. So you young and kids out there who got in Among Us but haven't seen the thing, yo, go watch the thing. Yep. Now, out of curiosity, have the developers explicitly stated, like, hey, this movie was an inspiration? Or is it just, like, 
part of the cultural zeitgeist at this point because there's so many hidden role games out there. Uh, yeah, it's so blatant. I feel like with how inspired it is by like the fact that like you are a shapeshifter if you are mm. the like monster. There's kind of the transformation stuff where like you know your guy grows in the animation of you killing somebody else. Your guy his chest turns into a mouth and like bites him in half. Like there's all that stuff. And like obviously it's it takes a lot of inspiration from like uh Trouble in Terrace Town or uh Salem's Village or whatever where it's a, a same kind of social deduction game, but it is so much like blatantly, I would say, inspired by it yeah. that I don't know if the if the people made it ever come out with it just because everybody was just like, Oh, this is like the thing, but a video game. You guys have both seen the new Battlestar Galactica, right? Uh, bits and pieces. I've never watched it. It's all. one of my favorite television series ever. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, there's an element because, like, the Cylons in this version are, hu- or some of them oh. are humanoid. Mm. And I just, I wonder, like, has Ronald Moore ever mentioned anything? Like, part of that inspiration came from something like the thing. I'm curious if he ever explicitly mentioned that. That just came to mind. So I didn't think to, like, look it up ahead of time. But. Again, there's all of the kind of finger pointing and there's somebody hidden among us who's a Cylon. That's not a part of the original show, but definitely no. a huge factor. That's in an the, interesting observation. The remake. Because I, I was just thinking like they, they have a Battlestar Galactica hidden role game as well. So, <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of that out there. But it's like, did anyone really do it before this story did and then of course these movies that came out of it i don't know that's a great observation i guys you really have to talk me into it but i do have the battlestar galactic board game and it is one of the (laughs) most complicated board games i own it's a little bit like um root have you guys ever seen or played root i've seen i've seen the box for yeah root is a lot of fun root is very very obscure it is it's yeah. Everyone it's at the really table hard. is playing a different game at the same time. <laughs> Simultaneously. And it's, it's, yeah. it's very difficult. You're it's all like playing the cones by of your... Dunshire from Parks and Rec. Yes. Kind of. Like you're all playing <laughs> by your own rules on the same board, but nobody's trying to achieve the same thing. And yet, yeah. Oh, it's, man. That's it's so, so interesting. That's so, funny. So I won't get like super detailed, but there's a lot of stuff that takes a lot of inspiration for this movie too. There are episodes of the X-Files that are attributed to the thing. Futurama, hmm. Stranger Things, Resident Evil 4, Tomb Raider 3. Oh, yeah. The Faculty, one of the most 90s horror movies ever. Yeah. Slither, The Mist. And a lot of filmmakers have said it's really influenced their work. Uh, Mikey, you mentioned Guillermo del Toro, J.G. Abrams, Neil Blomkamp, Quentin Tarantino has especially said not only did it influence Reservoir Dogs, all these guys stuck in a gory, horrible situation, Mm. but the Hateful Eight is like on the nose. It's Kurt Mm -hmm. Russell with a bunch of people (laughs) stuck in a cold cabin and there's gore everywhere. Yep. With was it? Who's Marconi? What's the guy's name? Ennio Marconi. Yeah. Yeah. With that, his that, unused soundtrack with his unused from the soundtrack, original. Yeah. Oh, guy. <laughs> are there others? I went through that really rapid fire, but there are like, are there any other yeah. thing in pop culture that you've seen or feel is really important? Mentioned of like that is like obviously took its spirit from the thing. I think you really touched on them all that I can think of. The only thing I could think of, and I don't think it's a direct relation, but it does remind me, is the whole trope of like people pointing the guns at each other and like a oh, three-way standoff. Stand yeah. And they're all like, you know, switching back and forth and like, okay, who's going to betray who? I don't know why it always makes me think of that. I don't think it's yeah. a direct relation, but like those always crack me up. Oh, I do want to say, uh, if we're talking, obviously we're talking about like the lasting impact. Can you think of something that John Carpenter's films, most of them have in common? This is a little obscure, so I'm not like I won't be surprised that you don't notice. An unstoppable murderer chasing everybody? 
Uh, it has to do with, with the credits of his films. Hmm. Oh. He doesn't properly attribute the dude who sold the rights <laughs> to Universal to make the thing? No. Uh, the font. Have you oh. ever noticed that he uses a specific font for no. most of his films? Is it Comic Sans? It is, it is called Albertus. Oh, Oh, I had no uh, idea. And commonly known as the Carpenter font because Halloween, The Thing, In mm. the Mouth of Madness, most of his like big, well-known films, Escape from New York, they all use this font. It, as soon as you see it, you'll be like, "Oh yeah!" Like I totally get where that is coming from. I don't know. Like he just wanted his own font that people would recognize because it's not yeah, it wasn't a commonly used one. It's no Times New Roman. He tried wingdings. Nobody knew what it said. He was like, okay, let's just scroll through. Hey, we'll go back to the top of the list. Albertus, that sounds great. I have just a couple things left in contemporary culture because none of you would have expected this. Maybe with uh, McCready's floppy hat. But there's a bit of an (laughs) Indiana Jones story that happens here in 2018. That there's this just random box of manuscripts that's sent to Harvard University for filing and, and use in their library. And they're digging through it, and they discover this manuscript called Frozen Hell. And it turns out <laughs> that the 1930s Who Goes There is a very short version of the full novelization oh. Frozen Hell. Oh, interesting. And so this guy Campbell goes and tries to get it published in a bunch of ways, couldn't get it out. And so a Kickstarter campaign launched that year, and they were just trying to raise a thousand bucks. That's it. And they raise $155,000. And so now it's out there. Wildside Press publishes it called Frozen Hell, the book that inspired the thing. It's illustrated by Bob Eggleton. And uh, yeah, you can go get it. It started being out there digitally in ebook in January of 2019. And physical copies came out three years ago. You can get it. I'm kind of curious. I'd love to see like what the fully fleshed yeah, out awesome. original 30s idea was. You have to get it from your local library, man. You got to get into it. You got to get into it. <laughs> Around the same time, 2020, a new film was announced to be in production. I do remember that. In the Thingiverse from Blumhouse Productions, and it was going to be released by Universal. You guys may remember, Hollywood kind of went on a big hold in 2020. Or what happened Uh, in 2020? Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Someone forgot to set the timer to remind us to work on the movie. But in May of just this year, John Carpenter confirmed that he's working on it, and it is technically a direct sequel to the 82 film interesting has he said whether or not he's directing it or is he just working on the score for it the quote i could see he just said that he's involved with the project i don't know what that so it's he's being very um so they handed him a check and he signed it over to his (laughs) right right he says you can slap my name on this interesting the last little fun nuance i think is just really cool i really really love this if you happen to find yourself in antarctica in february Every single year at the U.S. British station, which is the uh, Amundsen Scott South Pole Station, they screen mm-hmm. the thing for everyone stationed there as winter sets in in Antarctica. Not only do they screen the thing, but they screen actually all three versions, well, all three really films mm. titled the thing. I would be a little annoyed about the prequel, but uh, and they do it uh, on the day that the last flight. That will be bringing them surprise oh, leaves. That's so dark. Uh, f- over the winter. So yeah, the last flight leaves and then they all watch the thing. They, <laughs> wow. And I just want to be clear, like they could watch Alien vs. Predator to see like Burning Down <laughs> They could watch yep. Happy Feet with Robin Williams. Oh, no. Yeah. 
this as the last they're watching mm-hmm. the last plane take off and like the, the it rolls it's awesome yeah see i think i'm brave when i turn the lights off and i'm like i'm gonna watch a scary movie with no lights <laughs> on these guys are like we're not getting supplies for another season let's all watch the most terrifying thing we could possibly watch in the most terrifying place on earth oh my gosh wow yeah, it, it makes those people it. sitting in inner tubes at like a pool watching jaws yeah. Hell in comparison. Yeah. <laughs> well, if it's over with you guys, let's head down the hallway to the second most terrifying place on Earth, math class. Oh, to no. see that... how <laughs> the thing holds up today in 2023. All right. I was keeping it together until you said math class. I am mortified. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> this is gruesome, nihilistic. I, I don't want to be a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll hopefully see you guys there. All right, so Ben went into a room for a while, and I think he's back, but there's definitely something that looks like Ben here in math class, but Mikey, I don't know about you. I'm, I, I've, it's a little sus. I've still got my... Sus. I still have my flamethrower of questioning existence in yeah. this particular you know, podcast realm. Come here, Ben. I'm going to use a scalpel on your thumb. <laughs> no, God, that's like a oh, cringe. Ouch. We have made it to math class in some form or another. Shiny eyes, breath coming out of our mouths, visible. <laughs> uh, and let's talk about what we thought about the thing, which is great because we've all watched it very recently. So this helps keep it kind of fresh. Mm-hmm. This is great. I'll just kick it out because I'll just I just want to reiterate. I think it's sort of a, a victim of its timing of release. I think it was before its time. And it's just such a bummer, mostly because like hearing John Carpenter's how he felt that everyone hated it. Like there's so much content out there that just absolutely takes an Antarctic doo-doo on so much content. And we never think about the people who actually like believed in this stuff. Yeah. Who, it was their passion project and like how much that hurts. And so like to hear Carpenter's heartbreak after the thing in the eighties just sucks. That's terrible. Yeah. Like I already said, like I love the effects. The pacing is perfect. I love the, the slow roll reveal of how the thing gets worse and worse and worse. And you realize what it's capable of that, like the timeless tale of how destructive paranoia is and isolationism, this like battle against nature. You're definitely going to lose. Like we always say when you're sailing, like don't fear the sea, but respect it. Cause you'll always lose against the sea. Like mm. it's the same thing. <laughs> like you got to respect this situation. Of course, like we've talked about so many times, like the ending is awesome. Not knowing what the outcome is. It's weird that I'm relating this, but Halo Reach, I always enjoyed that game because it like flipped the trope of like, Mm -hmm. actually this game you just played for 40 hours, you die. Your whole team loses. You lose the game you've been trying to win. The entire planet loses. Right. And like that blew my mind when I played Halo Reach. And I feel like this with the thing where it's like, wait, we don't know if they not just if they make it but if one of them are the alien or not that's like genius level storytelling it was mm-hmm. awesome kind of like you mikey i think it is very easily in one of my top 10 favorite horror suspense movies of all time not that far behind alien i got to admit they are they're yeah. not that far away from each other i love this movie chris i would love to give our guest the final mic drop the final helicopter drop if you will if you're piloting as kurt russell who doesn't know how to fly a helicopter so (laughs) what did you think of this movie right so again coming into this with zero nostalgia not having seen it until that point uh i really did enjoy this movie uh for a lot of the reasons we've talked about the tension and suspense it really continues throughout at that pace it's aided by the solid acting the unrelenting but subtle baseline soundtrack, dum dum. Uh, 
So good. <laughs> uh, the setting is harsh. The circumstances grim. And the cinematography and lighting, I think, really reflect that in so many delightful ways. Already said it. Love ambiguous endings. Uh, don't like things to be neatly wrapped up. I like being left to wonder. This movie does that, as you said, Ben, beautifully, magically. The practical effects, I thought, were really good. I mean, sometimes they did look silly. I'm going to be 100% <laughs> honest. Like, looking at them these days, you're kind of like, oh, that looks kind of silly. However, they were good quality. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the totally. thing. And I don't think they broke the tensions of the scenes. There was never a point where I was like, oh, it's just silly and just, you know, started cackling and, and really was pulled out of the movie. It was just more like interesting to see all the creative forms that they were able to make the thing take on. I thought was just the best part of it. Even if, again, some of the practical effects are like, oh, that, that kind of looks goofy. Yeah. Mm. Still very fantastic. Again, a sucker for a Cthulian otherworldly monster that we cannot fully understand or fathom. You get that here. The alien is doing what it does. We don't get a sense it's intentionally trying to terrorize our group. Maybe it's just, you know... Looking for the restroom. It's, you know, getting up late for a midnight snack, and all of a sudden it's like flamethrowers in its <laughs> whoa, face. Whoa, 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 fire everywhere. Oh, God. But to me, it's more like a virus. Oh. Yeah. It's existing in the only way it knows how, and I think that makes it more terrifying. But also, we don't have confirmation it isn't acting maliciously. Again, we just <laughs> don't know. Yeah. Which is lovely. A lot of subtlety in the movie. A lot of things to pick up on and speculate upon rewatching. Apparently, you can watch this movie a gazillion times and come back and still have a debate on what the heck happened in that scene or what <laughs> happened at the end. I think the movie shows a lot without telling a lot. You yeah. know, like it, it does a lot of showing without telling, which I think all of that lends to the fact that, you know, we can still have these debates and that's so much fun. So, yeah, overall, I dug the movie. Really happy I finally got to watch it. And it has inspired me to pick up more of those 80s or even older, like the original uh, movie. What was it? The the, the thing, thing from, from another world. Another which, world. Yeah. Which I found out they uh, they added the whole another world thing because apparently there was some song that was popular at the time called the thing, oh, which I'm sure is just oh. some horrible 1950s pop song. Right. <laughs> yeah. So again, I'm really inspired to go pick up some of those uh, classic horror movies from the past, and uh, I'm really excited because. It's just about Halloween time here as we're mm. recording this. We're getting into the season, and uh, that's going to thrill me so much. Yes! So great pick, Ben and Mikey. So glad you lent your expertise. And now I think we need your, as of yet, very unknown analysis of this movie. <laughs> I don't think we have any sense yeah, have of no your feeling. No, we have no clue. Just like the monster, he will now fully reveal himself. That's right. I just want to reiterate, I think it's, honestly, I think it's a perfect film. I, there's nothing in it that I would cut. Uh, there's never a moment where I'm like, ah, oh, they could have shaved this down or they could have left this out. Or a moment where I'm like, this music sucks or that special effect doesn't work or that performance is real stilted. Like, it is honestly one of those perfect movies, I think. And like I said, it's what it doesn't do that makes it so special uh, and that elevates it above other movies that are, you know, twice as loud and twice as long. I do want to say, I keep saying it's one of my favorite films. I, I remembered way back in, oh, what year was this that I wrote this? 2012. I wrote my top 10 favorite horror movies out on my blog at the time. Are you comfortable in telling us about your blog? Do you want to pitch it? Can people find you and go read it? If you want to search it out, you can. Uh, I will warn you, I haven't written in it in over almost five years now. 
uh, it was and still is uh, at Mikey B's Movie Night. That's M-I-K-E-Y-B apostrophe S Movie Night dot uh, com. I love it. I also don't stand by the quality of my writing either. It was, like I said, a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but at number 10, I had Trick or Treat, uh, which is a horror anthology film. Uh, number nine, uh, Poltergeist, another 80s mm. classic. Oh, yeah. Number eight, uh, this one is a wild card, I feel like. Uh, Red State by Kevin Smith. Oh, interesting. I don't know if either of you saw I that. I don't know this one, no. no. Uh, it's about a Westboro Baptist-like church uh, that ends up, like, kidnapping a couple of kids from the town that they're in uh, and the FBI police that show up and try and get them to let them loose and everything kind of devolves from there. It is the least Kevin Smith movie that Kevin Smith has ever made. It's phenomenal. And it's really crazy. Uh, Number seven, while not made in the 80s, set in the 80s, uh, American Psycho with Christian Bale. Mm. Number six, uh, another 80s film, The Fun House by Toby Hooper. My man, Toby. We've seen that. We've seen that. Yeah. Really love that one. Number five, now we're getting to my top five, is Freaks by Todd Browning. Mm. Uh, 1932 film. It's about... One of a, us. One of yeah, us. Yes. Gooba, gaba, uh, where, gooba, yep, gaba. It's where that iconic chant comes from. It's about a uh, trapeze artist who is partnered up with the strongman in his circus, and they decide they're going to rip off... Uh, one of the members of the Ooh. freak show there, but they get the tables turned on them. Uh, number four, An American Werewolf in London, another 80s classic. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm. And then number three, The Thing. Oh, it's up there. Top three. That's great. The only two in front of it are Black Christmas, uh, which is my favorite slasher film of all time. Yay. We did talk about, about it. that one too. Yeah, yeah. Right. The one that is number one is it's number one mostly for sentimentality and what it means to me personally, and that's Army of Darkness, which mm. is the third oh, film sure. in the Evil Dead franchise, which sadly you guys never covered yet. There's still time, Mikey. There's still time. But yeah, so that was my top ten films of all time. Whether or not stuff would change around, there might be, but the thing would still be on there. Mm. Of course it would. Fantastic. Well, Mikey, we cannot thank you enough. Besides Bruce Campbell himself, there is no better expert on horror films from this era. Thanks for coming and being part of the show. This was great and so much fun having you. I would just like to add, there's no better expert that you know. Oh. Like, <laughs> like, I'm very flattered that you think I'm the horror expert. I'm sure there's somebody out there. I know there's somebody out there that knows more than me, but I'm glad that I'm the one that you know, because I get to be on this awesome show. That's right. For our listeners, I do need to ask, though, if you were listening close enough to hear who said last the magic phrase that identified which of us was which was that? What was that magic phrase? Oh, it was ben? a phrase. <laughs> this phrase. Do you, guys not, do you guys not remember it? Does anyone not no, recall? No, I was wondering if you could tell me. Well, here's the deal. I don't quite remember what it was. <laughs> well, why don't we just wait here? For a little while and see what happens. <laughs> There's only one horrific thing left to reveal in this episode. Oh, you just said it. Oh, I did. Oh, no. <laughs> oh! And that's our next topic, which I think, weirdly enough, we, we usually like to do a lot of variety. But our next topic is also about a group of coworkers stuck in isolation and paranoia, considering absolute slaughter of one another. Chris, do you want to tell us what is, what's going to be the next episode for our listeners? What a setup. My goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, I hate to dash everyone's expectations, but I do want to say again, Mikey, thank you for being here. We're so excited. Thank Love you being for here. being a friend. 
Your heart is true. No. You are a pal and a confidant. So good. Now, listeners, those words probably conjured up not only an immediate recognition, but I bet you heard them sung to music. An unmistakable 80s earworm. So everyone, picture it. Miami, Florida, 1985. <laughs> when a television sitcom sensation is about to strike gold. It's B. Betty, Rue, and Estelle, but come on, you know them as Dorothy, Rose, Blanche, and Sophia, your favorite grandmas, aunties, sisters, friends, anything in between as they explore friendship, dating, mortality, family, UFOs, and even hotel <laughs> ownership. That's right. Grab your cheesecake, start a pot of coffee, and throw on your comfiest nightgown because we're taking on the silver tsunami that is and was Golden Girls. Yeah. Yeah. Woo! Thank you for being a friend. <laughs> I'm excited. This is a great pick, listeners. We like the variety, and this is going to be a great episode of the podcast. I'm looking forward to it. We've only done one other sitcom before. We talked about Alf, and I was like, Ben, we've barely even scratched the surface of sitcoms. And I was like, well, what sitcom do we have to do? Before we close out this short season of season four, there has to be the sitcom, Golden Girls. It's Come on. Be. Come on. Oh, yeah. Very exciting. I don't know that I could name a more iconic 80s sitcom than Golden Girls, honestly. We're going to have a lot to cover. Oh, my goodness. So, listeners, grab two cheesecakes and meet us down in sunny Miami, Florida, because that's where we're going on the next episode of 80s High. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the rumor. Stay radical.